Welcome. This is episode 2.2 of History of the Atlantic World. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Strap in, folks. Today is the first day of the rest of our lives, and we are going to change the world. But before we dive into the material, I need just a minute of your time to ask for your help to produce quality episodes faster. Now, there are basically two really easy ways for you to pitch in. First, please take a few minutes just to write a written review for the podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen with. Uh, I just figured out, uh, excuse me, I just realized actually that I was not on Spotify, and so uh, we're on that now, and I think we should be on iHeartRadio too uh, very quickly. I apologize, but that, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, whatever you want. Um, Now, It doesn't really matter what exactly you write in your review, but if you do write a written review, that actually triggers the algorithms that govern which podcasts get promoted. Now, the more listeners who take just a little bit of time just to do this actually helps make sure that as many people as possible get to go along this journey with us uh, through time. Now, the other way you can help is to donate to the podcast Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Atlantic World. Now, episodes are always going to be free, but they actually do cost a decent chunk of change to do the research and to produce, not to mention the fee it costs just to host the show online. So contributions really help cover these costs, as well as to fund future projects. Actually, I'm going to have more news about those next episode. So, if you can, please help uh, finance the show by chipping in. You can do so for as little as $1 per month on patreon.com slash atlanticworld, or you can get there by clicking the link on the SoundCloud page where I host the site. Um, And what's really great about Patreon is that since you can help out with as little as $1 per month, that really just translates into about a buck or maybe a buck and change per show. And for the amount of content each show turns out to be, that's That's a really great value. So anyway, thank you for your time. I really appreciate your support. Now, finally, if you are interested in social media updates, you can find the History of the Atlantic World uh, podcast on Facebook by searching for at Atlantic World History, or you can follow me on Twitter at Atlantic 1492. I've also managed to put up a few uh, images of a few of the maps that correspond with different episodes on Instagram. You can follow me there by searching for Atlantic World Podcast. Uh, Thanks for your time. Once again, I really appreciate your support, uh, and especially the written reviews, since they help spread the podcast to other people. And not to mention, they actually do also give me a chance to read feedback. Now, with that said, on to the show. Now, it would be really nice if I could start this episode by talking about the Corn Mother. Uh, And of course, a lot of other topics. Mounds and mound builders, the rise of the Mississippian chiefdoms. Uh, matrilineage societies and, and clans, um, kivas, tricksters, potlatches, and pustekas. 
But, you know, most of all, I really do want to talk about the corn mother. But I, I actually don't want to start with the corn mother in North America. So I'm actually going to save our talk about her until next episode. Now, with that said, I can promise you, corn is going to come up an awful lot. Um, but instead, I think our focus is going to be on some of the other aspects of American society, specifically how a lot of them are segmented in three basic ways. And those are into matrilineages, clans, and moieties. Now, not all pre-Columbian American societies were divided in these exact three ways, but these were three aspects of numerous indigenous societies in the Americas, and they don't really seem to be isolated to any geographic or cultural region um, or amongst any specific linguistic group. So I definitely want to briefly talk about these three topics before we delve into the uh, different cultural regions of North America. But um, before we even do this one thing, what I really need to do is just talk briefly about sources, which, you know, of course, we obviously try to use a variety of sources with every episode. And some are going to have more than others, in large part of mostly my inability to read any languages other than English. But when you read history about Native Americans, you can get a lot of really wildly different viewpoints about them. Um, one big problem is that perhaps, uh, maybe this would surprise you, maybe it wouldn't, but perhaps a surprising amount of what has been written about Native Americans, both from the historical and the scientific community, is, is kind of racist. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and frankly, I'm not interested in getting angry while I read, so I don't really pick up a lot of that sort of stuff, uh, except from primary sources. Um, so you're not really going to get many examples of that sort of shit from me. But just to give you an idea of how casual this is throughout American history, um, and this has nothing to do with a history book, but I remember watching Bugs Bunny uh, when I was a little kid, and, and you can find this on Bugs Bunny. Um, there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he is killing Indians, and he's singing a song about it. He's in a western fort out west with his Winchester repeating rifle, and he's merrily singing a tune while he marks up his tally with a piece of chalk on the wall of the fort. One dead, two dead, three dead little Indians. Four dead, five dead, six dead little Indians. Seven dead, eight, er, <laughs> that one's a half-breed. Bugs Bunny is forced to erase his last mark, who, having one white parent, wasn't a real savage, and so he didn't count. Um, now, that cartoon, I guess, was probably produced in, probably, what, the 1940s? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. But at any rate, that is the literal viewpoint of many authors um, from one end of the spectrum of the scholarly work on Native Americans. Now, I'm going to pre pre present you a tale that shows that Native Americans were not bloody savages, at least no more than any other human beings. But on the other hand, neither were they the noble savages, which is to say they certainly weren't magical forest people who talked to animals or somehow had no real impact on their environment, essentially being magical medieval environmentalists, stuck in time and living in an untouched wilderness, completely at peace with the universe. Now, this might not be as an offensive of a stereotype uh, like that of the, 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 the savage native but it's a stereotype nonetheless. And even if it doesn't reach the same bar of offensiveness, it isn't accurate. So with that in mind, the goal of today's episode is simple. 
We're going to demystify Native Americans, show them who they, for who they really are, which is to say they were people trying their very best to be human beings. And by doing this, by viewing them as people, we might just be able to learn from both their mistakes and their successes. Now, with that said, when I say them, I mean thousands of different ethnic groups, what might legally be called tribes, which existed throughout the Americas. And the tremendous cultural variety that existed as a result meant that a rich world existed here long before contact with Europeans. These people faced struggles that were both unique to themselves and their environments. Yet simultaneously, these struggles were human, and so they mirror in our own in many ways. So we can learn a lot by studying the history of the Americas. And so while I'll tell you right now, there's no such thing as a noble savage. If we examine the history of the complex mosaic of human cultures that existed in the Americas, we actually can obtain at least some of the answers to today's problems. Now, I've stated before that I'm speaking to you today because I stand atop the shoulders of giants. It is my contention that all of us do the same. We all stand on the shoulders of the giants of the past, and if we take the opportunity to learn from the history of the Americas, then surely we will be able to reach greater heights than ever before. Now, at any rate, we are going to be continuing to use Mark Sutton's A Prehistory of North America as uh, one of our main guides, and in addition, two more general overviews of prehistoric North America, J.C.H. King's First People's First Contacts, and Colin G. Galloway's One Vast Winter Count, which is just an amazing book, by the way. Now, W.W. Uh, Newcomb Jr.'s Indians of Texas will help give us a close-up of the Lone Star State. Newcomb, Newcomb Jr. seems equally parts disgusted and mystified by hunter-gatherers, so he's actually kind of funny to read because he simultaneously presents both the myth of the noble savage and the myth of the bloody savage in his book. But nevertheless, some of the information in it is actually quite good. A couple of native authors will help us uh, uh, understand our quest better to understand the past of uh, California. O.D.B. Falks, the Modoc people, and... Um, and Henry F. Dobbins and Robert E. Euler's The Wallapai People uh, will, will help us there. George R. Milner's The Mound Builders uh, get, helps us dig into the Mississippian cultures of the East. And Charles M. Hudson's book, Conversations with the High Priest of Cusa, further helps us understand the worldview of these people. Charles Hudson, by the way, is practically the godfather of southeastern archaeology. And this book uh, is actually going to take us on a fictional interview between a Spanish Catholic priest and the high priest of Cusa, a Mississippian chieftain. And while the actual conversation did not take place, it was actually an, it's actually an excellent opportunity to dive into the Mississippian worldview. Um, anyway, and finally... To flesh out just a little bit more of the Northeast, um, with the help, we will do that with the help of a collection of Haudenosaunee essays entitled uh, The Basic Call to Consciousness that will help us understand the creation of uh, what you might know of as the Iroquoian Confederacy. So with that out of the way, let's briefly touch up on matrilineages. Now, I believe I covered matrilineages actually a little in a, probably a little bit of detail way back in my introductory episode about colonial savannah. 
um, since the native peoples of coastal Georgia lived in matrilineal societies. So I don't want to get too caught up in this. But basically, matrilineages were how many Native American societies were subdivided or segmented at their most basic level, which is to say the family unit. Unlike Western society, the matrilineage was more focused on a little bit more of an extended family than just the nuclear family. So essentially, if you lived in a matrilineage, then you and all of your relatives would trace your kinship back to a common ancestor like your great-great-grandmother, for instance. In many indigenous societies, matrilines might be considered the glue that held everything together. And on a larger scale, clans did the same thing. Clans consisted of multiple matrilines that could in fact even be spread out across multiple societies. And they were often based upon descent from an ancestor in the far past. Though this is actually a little bit simplistic since uh, in a number of these societies you could be adopted into a clan. Uh, but basically that is how membership worked. You were born into a clan and it was also possible to be adopted into a clan. At any rate, clans weren't just familiar in nature. People belonged to different clans like the Bear Clan or the Turtle Clan or the Salt Clan or the Wind Clan and were said to have similar traits. Members of the Eagle Clan might be known for their eyesight. The members of the Deer Clan had a reputation of being especially fleet of foot. And so I, I don't want to overgeneralize on clans um, since each different clan had its own rituals, ceremonies, traditions, rules, and holidays. Like matrilines, not all Native American societies organized themselves into clans, but an awful lot of them did. And they too served as a type of glue or binding which held these societies together. Further, since some clans might be quite spread out and exist and have bases of operations in different indigenous societies, the clans served as means for peeping, keeping people con connected um, and they greatly helped the flow of trade and information throughout the history of the Americas. Now, finally, at the largest uh, subunit of organization below that of the tribe itself, we have the moiety. Now, again, like clans and matrilineages, not all indigenous societies organized themselves into moieties, but many did. And that is to say that many indigenous societies were split into two halves. These halves, or moieties, served to organize populations into two separate camps. Basically, people with different main roles. For example, many indigenous societies were ruled by a chief from one moiety. But in times of war, the other moiety would take over leadership duties, and a different war chief would be in control. Now, I'm not exactly sure where the word moiety itself comes from, but it means half. And while the term itself might be new to you, if you're like me and living in the United States, the idea that a society might be split into two main parts or two moieties is a concept you're quite familiar with. Anyway, now that I've gotten that out of the way, let's proceed. I've tried to give a close-up view into some of the different cultures that existed in North America here, but this list is by no means comprehensive, of course. Now, Many of the Plains peoples, I specifically didn't get into too much detail yet because I think it'll be better for us to wait until we can do an episode on the effect that the arrival of horses have on the Plains. Uh, maybe a short series on some of the immediate consequences of the Spanish conquests is necessary, I think. Um, 
Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but just something I need to figure out in the future. But as for as for right here and now, if we're go- we're going to start in the south today, talking first about the southwest, moving up the west coast and into the Arctic and subarctic. Then we're going to head back south again, restarting in Texas and moving east into the Mississippian world before ending with the eastern woodland chiefdoms of the northeastern United States and southeastern Canada. Now, perhaps the great question of history, the greatest question of history, excuse me, is why people made the transition to agriculture. In the American Southwest, this occurred very early. Despite the success of hunting and gathering, despite the fact that agriculture is less nutritious, it requires more work, and it leaves populations more vulnerable to disease and to conflict with other groups over food and water. So there's actually a lot of reasons why people should not turn to agriculture. And so it turns out that the process by which people did become agriculturalists is a slow one. Nobody ever said, not ever, not even one single time, hey, I think we're going to eat less nutritious food, but also work harder to get it, and risk death in doing so, just on the off chance that one day this benefits my descendants 1,000 years from now. No, seriously, nobody ever, ever said that. So, with that said, it was long believed that once upon a time, about 4,000 years ago, farmers from Mesoamerica gave or traded corn, beans, and squash to the people of the American Southwest. And whammo, just like that, people said, fuck hunting and gathering, I'd rather work in a field, in the hopes that insects don't eat these plants I'm raising. Now, obviously, that's a really simplistic view of the past. But this viewpoint arose in researchers' minds because around 4,000 years ago, people in the American Southwest began adopting Mesoamerican cultural traits. Remember last episode, I mentioned that there would be some overlap between our different cultural zones? Well, the border between the American Southwest and Mesoamerica was pretty permeable then as it is now. At any rate, Two things are clear about agriculture in the Southwest. First, it certainly did not arise from a simple migration of Mesoamerican people into the Southwest. And second, that it was not the result of Southwestern people wholesale abandoning their successful ways of life, dropping their spears, and picking up garden hoes. Now, it's become clear now that corn, and probably beans and squash as well, the three sisters, actually arrived in the southwest sometime before people became settled agriculturalists there. And likewise, long before Mesoamerican cultural traits showed up. Instead, it seems that corn made its way into the American southwest sometime before 4,000 years ago, first as a minor component of a subsistence system. Now, how it got there isn't exactly clear. But many peoples of the Southwest speak Uto-Aztecan languages, as do a number of groups in Mexico. I believe that trade through this path of separate but related cultural groups is the most likely answer. Excuse me. At any rate, over the next 2,000 years, a number of transformations occurred in the Southwest. Now, they didn't all happen at the same time. But slowly and surely, southwestern peoples became better at farming, uh, the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, 
and they started developing new techniques and technologies to improve their crop yields. And as a result of this, these people slowly became more sedentary. By the time of Christ, the people of the Southwest had transformed themselves from hunter-gatherers into corn people. The Navajos say that when first man was made, white corn was formed with him, already in the perfect shape. First woman, on the other hand, was formed with a perfectly shaped ear of yellow corn. Other southwestern people tell similar tales, and from these stories, we learn that life began with maize. Now, within the Southwest, we know of four separate agricultural societies that made this transition here in different ways and at different times. The ancestral Puebloans, the Mongolan, uh, excuse me, the Mogolan, the Hohokam, and the Patayan. Now, I want to say right now, I've said it before, I'll say it again, my pronunciation is terrible. Now, we aren't sure about the relationship between these groups, but they had clear differences in architecture, settlement and subsistence, art and pottery styles. The ancient Pueblos, though, are the most recognizable of the southwestern sites, and in fact some of the most recognizable ruins in the world. They've long been viewed as construction projects of the direct ancestors of the contemporary Pueblo groups. These people were originally called Anasazi, but that's not the preferred term anymore. And that's because Anasazi is actually a Navajo word, and it actually just literally translates into ancient enemy. Um, the Puebloan peoples obviously do not care to be called this, and so at any rate, that's why you should use ancestral Puebloan instead of Anasazi. They lived in much of Arizona and New Mexico, and their territory stretched north into southern Utah and Colorado. Originally, they lived in caves and rock shelters, and occasionally small villages of one to three pit houses. They made baskets, used the addle-addle, and stored corn in underground storage pits lined with rock, and all this was about 2,100 years ago. We know they made baskets because we have evidence of corn at sites they used, but we do not have evidence of pottery. That was adopted about 200 years later, 1,900 years ago. This pattern of life spread quickly through the region, and with it came changes, like larger and more elaborate villages, and around 1,800 years ago, beans were added to crops. Now, there's some evidence of conflict at the years that followed in some areas. Some villages have been found with stockades or burned structures, and we have definitive evidence of a drought around 1,500 years ago, and this certainly put pressure on crop production at that time. In addition, people ban began building above-ground structures, both for storage and for living. Some of the larger pit houses might have also been converted into newer buildings, and these began to evolve into the great kivas of the Pueblo period. This change in architectural styles really took off about, I don't know, about 1,350 years ago to about 1,200 years ago, and, and it did so alongside population growth and new religious ceremonies. During this transition period, people in the Southwest became more and more dependent on agriculture, and it actually wasn't a great time for farming either. But starting around 1,200 years ago, rainfall increased in the region, and suddenly, farming became much more productive. And it soon became the dominant means of obtaining food as village sizes continued to increase. 
Now, one site that has been well-researched is Chaco Canyon, which is in the San Juan Basin of northwest New Mexico. Nine major pueblos are known within the canyon itself. It was long occupied by a small population, but the ancestral Puebloans began experimenting with farming uh, long ago. And as a result, about 1,200 years ago, construction within Chaco Canyon exploded. A number of large, great houses, which is the hallmark of Chacoan culture, were developed. These great houses are large, multi-story pueblos with hundreds of rooms, often shaped like a capital D. And about 200 years after their construction, great kivas were added to many of the great house pueblos of Chaco Canyon. Now, before we get any further into discussing uh, Chaco Canyon itself or the Southwest, I think I'd better briefly explain what the heck a great kiva is. Um, kiva is a Hopi term, which means ceremonial room. A kiva is a special building constructed by Puebloan people in the shape of a circle cut into the earth or stone, which creates a subterranean structure. It is often covered with a roof, and it was used for religious ceremonies and for political purposes. Benches lined the walls of kivas. People entered via a staircase from the northern side, and uh, many contained a foot drum built into the floor. And a great kiva is essentially a much larger version of that, often more than 100 square meters in area. Um, they contained objects like large serving bowls for communal feasts. Um, those are the sorts of artifacts commonly uncovered by archaeologists who have looked into great kivas. But anyway, back to Chaco Canyon. Uh, the canyon contained a number of settlements, ranging from small to very large. The biggest was Pueblo Bonito, which has something like 800 rooms on four stories, though there may in fact also be an unexcavated buried story underneath this massive structure. It was built just east of a natural amphitheater, and probably functioned as a political capital. Something like 200,000 construction beams were needed to build the pueblos in the canyon. Nearby areas would have actually been stripped of pine, but it is clear from analysis of the beams, beams that most of them came from places at least 75 kilometers away. So what's really wild is that the chemical analysis of the corn found here proves that almost all of it wasn't actually grown in the canyon. It was imported from elsewhere as well. Lots of trade goods were also found, like macaws and other exotic birds, copper bells, and turquoise. Now, even more impressive than the scale of the organization and construction within Chaco Canyon is the fact that it seemed to have ruled an area of about 40,000 square miles of the northern southwest, something like 200 other Chacoan great house communities have been discovered outside of the canyon, some as far as 80 kilometers away. In addition, a number of high towers are present in the canyon, each visible by the next, and it's likely that a system of communication involving fire towers connected this early American empire. In addition, irrigation facilities are present in the canyon bottom, as are water control systems like dams and reservoirs on the tops of the surrounding mazes. Now, with all that said, we don't really know the exact nature of how the Chacoan system operated. It might have been ruled by political elites who controlled a centralized economy. Or 
Perhaps a religious authority ruled Pueblo Bonito and beyond. It is also possible that the great houses were built by corporate entities, clans, in order to validate their claims about who lived on what piece of land. We don't really know. What we do know from mortuary patterns is that this was a ranked society of some sort. Some people were healthier than others, so they must have had different access to resources. Finally, we don't really know how exactly... uh, how the control of the linked settlements outside the canyon uh, operated. Now, clearly there was collaboration between these places, but we don't know uh, the exact relationship. Now, as impressive as the Chacoan system was, though, it began to collapse around a thousand years ago. The reasons for this are mysterious. Perhaps a drought or overexploitation of resources led to the collapse. Or maybe it was just a lack of public confidence in the system. But it's also possible that while Chaco Canyon itself might have been greatly diminished, the Chacoan system continued on. A new major center developed to the north at a site called Aztec. No, not those Aztecs. I know it, it's a little confusing, and uh, but then eventually Aztec is going to decline. And north of that, a new center will arise in, excuse me, to the south, a new center in Paquime in northern Mexico arises. Now, why this is important is that all three of these sites are situated on a precise north-south line. And so it's thought maybe a planned succession of political centers was, uh, was, was hap- going on. But at any rate, we, we don't know. Now, despite all of my talk, though, of giant construction projects, most people in the Southwest lived in small, dispersed villages at this time. But then, about 950 years ago, this started to change. The ancestral Puebloans began living in fewer, but much larger Pueblos. Archaeologists call this period, from about 950 years ago to about 800 years ago, the Great Pueblo Period. So, you know, some really important developments are going to take place. Now, anyway, after about 700 years ago, community architecture began to increase uh, in scale and variety. As these outlying peoples who had been drawn into the larger pueblos, many with great kivas and hundreds of rooms um, that are constructed across the northern southwest, Uh, A lot of these uh, new pueblos are shaped like capital D's, like Santo Bonito was. Uh, Many also included roads and defensive structures. Uh, These sites contained a number of towers, some for defense and probably communication, but others were actually seem to have been constructed for religious purposes because they contained kivas on top of them. And so likely there was a complex set of factors at work which drew people to these new cities. I think it's pretty clear, though, that more than one chiefdom or city-state existed at this time, judging by the defensive works, um, but also that people were probably drawn into new communities in order to experience the benefits from new religious rituals that were controlled by the elites of these places. But elites might not be exactly the right term because this transformation of society in the Southwest was large-scale. Now, the construction of Chaco Canyon brought in people surrounding, uh, brought in the people surrounding the area as a result. 
And later, now in the Great Pueblo period, this happens on a mass scale in the uh, northern southwest. Basically, in the past, the people of the southwest had become agriculturalists, uh, but had remained pretty spread out. Essentially, different families or extended families controlled different plots of land, sort of like a sort of like private land tenure. And in Chaco Canyon, that might have been how things still worked. And that might have contributed to the collapse, if researchers are correct, that a combination of a changing environment and internal divisions led to the end of the Chaco Canyon Empire. But in the period of the Great Pueblos, it seems that this new process of urbanization occurred with the consolidation of these many small farms that were once spread out. Um, agricultural lands became under the control of larger groups in this process. Clans in some cases, villages, or other larger governments in others. Environmentally, the reasoning behind this seems to have been that lessened rainfall and possibly the degradation of some farmland um, had created a need to pool more labor to maintain agricultural production. So rather than perhaps a family or extended family of elites seizing power, it seems likely that more of a grassroots effort developed where multiple groups worked together to start building these new cities. Now, obviously, corn, beans, and squash continued to be the, the major crops that were the backbone of these societies. But also, by the time of the Great Pueblo period, another crop uh, was uh, very prevalent, and that is cotton. Um, domesticated turkeys were raised for food and for feathers as well. Feather blankets, in particular, were very valuable trade items. Now, at some point around 900 years ago, a number of pueblos were constructed in and around cliffs, the famous cliff, cliff dwellings of the southwest. It is commonly presumed that the placement of these settlements was for defensive purposes, but it is also possible that they were placed there um, to be close to the canyon bottom, but simultaneously to avoid using the good agricultural land on the valley, on the canyon bottom. But either way, these are incredible feats of engineering for pre-modern peoples. In most cases, they were placed on a part of a canyon wall where the sun exposure was good, thus attempting to both avoid the cold floor of the canyon bottom and the windy canyon top. A great place to see this is at Mesa Verde in northwestern New Mexico. There's a national park there now, which an orange buffoon won't let you visit at the moment, but... Many of the cliff dwellings are located there, which presumably you could visit one day in the future when order is restored. But anyway, now just as quickly as all of this began, the Great, Great Pueblo period, it seemed to begin to fall apart. A major drought began, which lasted 25 years as measured in tree rings, and this precisely matches the end of the construction of these pueblos and the abandonment of the region. Now, for any sticklers for the modern Judeo-Christian calendar, the years we're talking about here are about, are, excuse me, 1276 to 1299. Now, by the end of this 25-year drought, the northern southwest was virtually abandoned. The people who moved there in the two centuries earlier moved south into the northern Rio Grande, but they did not do so as a uniform culture and instead split into the modern Pueblo, the Mogollon, and the Hohokam. It isn't entirely clear why this happened, 
There have been other droughts in the history of the Southwest. Worse droughts, in fact. So it's a little bit of a mystery for archaeologists, but some think that because clans controlled the food sources, that the changing environment caused a breakdown in the cooperative food-sharing systems that allowed for these Pueblo communities to grow, and that this led to warfare and disruption of food supplies, leaving many people with a simple choice, migrate or starve. But that isn't clearly the case. It is also possible that poor agricultural techniques might have led to large-scale erosion, which combined with greatly lessened rainfall might have meant that it had been impossible for the large populations in the area to remain even without warfare. But further, it is possible that with the drought, things might have sucked, but not been unlivable. And simply, people began to leave because of factors uh, that occurred elsewhere in the South. New religious developments, like the appearance of Katsina dolls, were, uh, were, were, were developing. And, and, and this became an important part of belief in the Southwest, along with new dances and other ceremonies. Uh, and, and this was the embodiment of important spirits, which amongst other things might bless the people with a rainy sis- season. At any rate, whatever the reason of, or mix of reasons that happened, the Anstropobloans abandoned much of the northern southwest, and other peoples moved in later, Numic and Athapascan speakers to be precise. As for the Puebloans, who mostly abandoned the north, um, they also started moving west to east. Now, they didn't entirely abandoned the western regions of the southwest as they did the northern regions of the southwest, but a lot of people did move east. They congregated in clusters of large towns, and they began to develop new social arrangements to deal with the high level of social conflict that was going on in these new town clusters. Um, and this, they did so it seems largely by adopting the Katsina religious complex, which appeared around 750 years ago. Now, some of these Puebloan sites are quite extensive, like the Homolovi site along the Little Colorado River, which is a collection of seven Pueblos with 3,300 rooms, wherein lived probably something like two or 3,000 people. The Pueblos of Homolovi began to be built around 940 years ago or at least the oldest Pueblos were, but by around 700 years ago, the site was abandoned, and some of the Pueblos appear to have been purposefully burned. Only a few Pueblos remained occupied in the west after this, though a greater number survived along the Rio Grande in the east. These people continued to live this way until 1540, basically, when the Spanish arrived in the southwest. But the Puebloans were not the only southwestern peoples. Mogollon peoples lived in the mountains of southern Arizona, New Mexico, and northern Mexico. Their culture originated around 2100 years ago, when agriculture was adopted by the people of this region. Now, as an advent, uh, as a result of the advent of agriculture, Mogollon pit house villages that originally often contained maybe just like one or two families, slowly over time became larger villages of pit houses centered near good farmlands along river terraces of the mountain valleys. Larger villages contained communal structures, while smaller villages did not, suggesting that some smaller villages relied on larger villages for ceremonial purposes. 
And all of this uh, had occurred by about 1,600 years ago, mind you. But agriculture still wasn't the primary focus of Mogollon life until about 1,300 years ago. In the next few hundred years after that, the Mogollons stopped building pit houses and started building pueblos. Now, these are different pueblos than the Puebloan people were building, but there's enough similarities to say that there was definitely some cultural fusion going on between these two groups by about 1,100 years ago, with an apparent Puebloan influence on Mogollon pottery styles and some influence on Pueblo construction. Though, the Mogollon construction was still pretty different. Uh, they did not build large, multi-story buildings, but instead smaller pueblos, and on the floors of valleys, not on the sides of cliffs. Now, at any rate, things continued to change as time went on. Now, the drought that seems to have at least helped contribute to the disintegration of the ancient Puebloan culture obviously had an effect on the Mogollons. Many sites were abandoned around 700 years ago, and the Mogollons reorganized themselves into smaller, uh, dispersed villages, living more by hunting and gathering, as their ancestors had done in the past. Now, the term collapse has been used to describe this sort of situation, but it's quite clear the Mogollon culture did not collapse. It did change, but it certainly continued, and beyond that, it attracted new followers. Some of the ancestral Puebloans migrated into Mogollon lands in the aftermath of the drought, what archaeologists term the aggregation period. <clears throat> Excuse me. While some of these migrants might may have established independent Puebloan communities, others clearly married into Mogollon families. A number of Puebloan people have been found buried in Mogollon burial sites. Likewise, Puebloan refugees in many cases became Mogollon. Um, or excuse me, well that happened. Likewise, many of the, po the Mogollons also became a little more Puebloan, just like these Puebloan refugees were becoming more Mogollon. And for no other reason at least than the population increase from the refugee, uh, and for no other reason at least than the population increase from these refugees, the Mogollon began construction, constructing larger settlements with Pueblos consisting of over 100 rooms. Excuse me, I better take a sip of water. Now, the Mogollon region was largely abandoned shortly before contact. It's not entirely sure or clear what happened. And it seems that many of the Mogollons simply went south to Paquime, though some may have also moved into Puebloan populations on the Rio Grande or the Colorado River. We don't know. Now, Paquime itself was built on top of earlier pit house and Pueblo villages in northern Mexico. And it was on the floodplain of the Rio Casas Grandes. It is a well-excavated site. It consisted of something like 1,500 rooms, ball courts, platform and effigy mounds, a water system of canals and reservoirs. Um, all of this makes it without a doubt one of the most impressive sites in North America. It was first built around 900 years ago, but construction really took off about 75 years later. A massive number of public spaces like plazas, ball courts, and platform mounds took place. A clear connection exists with Mogollon culture, but it also contained a number of Mesoamerican traits, like the unique capital I-shaped ball courts of Mesoamerica. 
The existence of the ball court definitely shows that Pakime was at least somewhat connected to Mesoamerica, but it's not exactly clear how. Possibly it served as a way to entertain visiting Mesoamerican traders by challenging them to a fun game of skill. Sounds likely to me, but who knows? The people of Pekime were involved in a trade system that was very far-ranging. Trade goods included copper bells, macaws, shell ornaments, foreign-made pottery. Uh, these were all found in large quantities at the site. Much of the materials seemed to have been warehoused at Pekime, uh, worked and manufactured by craft specialists who lived there and then exported their finished goods to other places uh, by people like perhaps Mesoamerican Puchteca merchants. Now, birds must have been very important for religion here. Macaws and turkeys uh, have been found that were ritually buried. So clearly some sort of religious belief involving these birds was going on. Now, like many other sites, though, in the American Southwest, Bakime was mysteriously abandoned around 650 years ago, but nobody really knows why. A variety of explanations have been offered, but none, apparently, with a whole lot of evidence. It has been thought perhaps disease devastated the population. This is possible, but it appears Bakime was abandoned around 1450. Uh, this is before, obviously, the introduction of old world diseases by Europeans. But obviously, also, not all diseases originated in Europe. But that means that this hypothesis is perhaps slightly less likely than another possible answer, which is warfare. But here, no evidence has appeared thus far of any battles at Bekime, uh, at least not during this time frame. So it doesn't seem that invaders sacked the site. They probably would have made off with more of the stored trade goods, if nothing else. But one last idea, suggested by archaeologists, is related, though. And it's one I've never really thought about, but once I did, I wondered how many times in the old world it was possible that this might be a good explanation for why some ancient cities were mysteriously abandoned. And that is that perhaps a great battle did indeed take place. But this great battle took place somewhere else. And as a result of perhaps a catastrophic failed attack, so many of the adult warriors of, of Pakime were killed or captured in wherever the battle did take place, that Pakime was abandoned afterwards. Now, it's not at all clear that this hypothesis is any more or less likely than the other two, mind you, but you really got to wonder. Now, at any rate, moving on, the Hohokam were another group of southwestern farmers. They occupied the Sonoran Desert in Arizona. Most of their settlements were in the valleys of the Salt, Gila, and San Pedro rivers, though upland sites away from the rivers have also been uncovered by archaeologists. Their cities were defined by large-scale canal irrigation, monumental architecture like ball courts and platform mounds, and a distinctive pottery type. The largest site is called Snake Town, from which Phoenix gets its name, a city that supposedly arose from the ashes of Snake Town. Modern archaeologists are perplexed by the Hohokam in some ways. 
For starters, the Hohokam was a multi-ethnic society. They did not speak a single language. Now, that isn't unusual. Excuse me, and neither is the fact that the Hohokam adopted a lot of Mesoamerican traits like ball courts, copper bells, mirrors, turquoise, macaws, platform mounds, etc. But what's odd is that rather that these rather than these materials being hoarded by elites, they appear to have been dispersed through the population. The more than 100 platform mounds that have been discovered in Hohokam territory are thought to be elite residences, and that Hohokam was a chiefdom-level society. But still, it is very difficult to detect individuals with extravagant wealth. So basically what's so perplexing about this is that a multi-ethnic, multilingual society managed to get along, apparently, without stark class inequality or at least inequality that is visible in the archaeological record. The Hohokam began to adopt corn agriculture about 3,600 years ago. Corns and squash were added after this. Excuse me, beans and squash were added after this. Though, like elsewhere, agriculture was not originally that important. Um, And that didn't happen until about 1,900 years ago. By that time, people were living in small villages, often in floodplains. And over the next 400 years, sedentism increased in the region. Now, archaeologists break the Hohokam development into four stages, beginning right around the year uh, 1 AD in the modern calendar, which is the beginning of the pioneer period. That is when Hohokam towns became occupied year-round. Squash and beans were added as crops, and the Hohokam core area around modern Phoenix and Tucson, uh, these became developed. Uh, The towns were relatively small at this time, mind you, though. And now, about 450 years ago, after the start of the pioneer period, canal irrigation appears. A complex system with facilities that obviously required a society able to mobilize a large amount of labor. Now, probably as a result of these new agricultural technologies, Hohokam settlements experienced increased population and village size, and the establishment of a lot of new villages and towns over the next 300 years. The Hohokam expanded into areas uh, both near rivers and away from rivers, and a few nearby groups appear to have been incorporated into the Hohokam tradition. All of this was managed by a road system that was developed from the Hohokam capital, It seems that all roads led to Snaketown. Archaeologists call this the colonial period, and it began about 1,350 years ago. During this time, the Hohokam developed a relationship with Mesoamerican civilizations. Ball courts, trade goods from that region appear pretty suddenly. Over the course of about 225 years, the Hohokam adopted a lot of Mesoamerican culture. So perhaps a new religious movement began which connected these peoples uh, to one another. It's not exactly clear at all uh, why or how this happened. Now at any rate, during this period, the Hohokam began engaging in extensive irrigation projects along the Salt River near Phoenix. And this included an enormous canal system. Some of the canals were 60 feet in diameter. Gates were constructed at strategic points, and many of the canals were lined with clay to prevent seepage. Eventually, the Hohokam constructed an incredible 600 miles of canals, a tremendous accomplishment for pre-modern people. And to put this in context, 
This is the same century as, uh, ha- as when the original Muslim conquest of Spain was going on. So while in the old world, barbarians were putting on helmets and running around bashing each other's skulls in on the Iberian Peninsula, the Hohokam were building an extensive agricultural empire. I digress. Anyway, after a couple hundred years of being in the colonial period, the Hohokam people, according to archaeologists, stopped doing this and entered the sedentary period. I kid, because it is helpful to understand the past by categorizing the past into eras, but it's also a little silly in that I don't think the people who were alive at the time woke up one day and simply started seeing themselves in a new stage of development. You know, these are all gradual processes. Anyway, the sedentary period was one of increased rainfall for the region, and the Hohokam population grew in both size and number of settlements. Platform mounds were constructed for the first time. Generally, these were circular with flat tops, and some were surrounded by wooden palisades. Likewise, there was a dramatic increase in the number of ball courts in the core Hohokam area, though the ball courts were abandoned at the same time in some of the outlying Hohokam areas. So some of these likely were just moved for some reason. We don't know what that is, but perhaps because in addition to a place for games, it is assumed that they served as a focal point for local markets, and as the people of the region became increasingly sedentary, perhaps the Hohokam core uh, grew in power and drew commerce closer. Um, This is very likely, but I can't help but also wonder if perhaps some sort of sports league developed, and bringing the different ball courts closer together would have made away matches in such a league much easier for elites to attend. Who, Who knows? Some towns had large central plazas, and the amount of public space and religious space within Hohokam towns increased during this period, um, and pottery became something that was mass-produced by specialists. Now, the Hohokam system changed radically as the result of two factors, I think. First, the period of increased rainfall came to an end um, around 950 years ago, and this put a strain on the system. And in the following years, the Hohokam began to develop more and more Puebloan traits, undoubtedly in no small part because Puebloan peoples were moving from the north, and things were beginning to change. Ball construction, uh, ball court construction ceased, the shape of platform mounds changed, and so did a lot of other architecture, including the beginning of construction of Pueblo-like great houses. By about 650 years ago, the Hohokam had basically disappeared, Or, well, it isn't really clear that they disappeared, but it is definitely clear that the Hohokam were no longer Hohokam. The Hohokam, it seems, had become two separate groups, the Papago and the Upper Pima. A lot of people may have left the region altogether, much as the Puebloans had done in their homeland. Whatever the exact specifics, it is likely that there were not enough resources to sustain the Hohokam's system, and it collapsed. Now, Puebloan, Mogollon, and Hohokam people of the southwest were joined by Athapascan speakers sometime around a thousand years ago. These people came from the Canadian subarctic and eventually made their way to Arizona and New Mexico. They were called by the Apaches and the Navajo by others, though I would like to point out that both Apaches and Navajo refer to themselves as Nde and Dine, respectively, which is a word that simply means man or people. 
The Navajo adopted farming, the Apaches did not, and while I haven't focused on these two groups much here, they will be coming up quite a bit uh, once the Spanish make their way up into uh, the northwest from Mexico. Now, with that said, that still doesn't quite cover the entirety of the southwest because there were also groups of hunter-gatherers here. Despite the preeminence of urban dwelling and agriculture, like in South Texas, for example, the Karankawas and Colhuatecans lived in the area of Galveston Bay, south to the coast of the Rio Grande, and westward past the modern city of San Antonio to the mouth of the Pecos River. These people didn't really engage in much agriculture, though they did make use of a number of wild plants, including a number of cacti species. In addition, they hunted a variety of game, including buffalo, which were quite rare in comparison to more northern climes, but were around in Texas. Now, in fact, a lot of South Texas is pretty inhospitable, though, and the Indians of South Texas, as a result, got quite a bit of protein from insects and other arthropods. Spiders and ant eggs were two meals which modern man might have a little trouble fathoming. Um, but even W.W. Newcomb Jr., the author of The Indians of Texas, From Prehistoric to Modern Times, admits that, quote, While the price of survival in South Texas may seem high to us, it was paid willingly as un and unquestioningly as we do our own, and perhaps even more joyfully, unquote. I say Newcomb admits this because it's quite clear from reading his book that he has little regard for hunter-gatherers. He believed them primitive, perhaps stupid, and despite the inarguable fact that he managed to write and have published a book about such people, clearly he had a bit of trouble understanding such a life. He calls the natives of Texas savages and barbarians. And for the life of me, I have, I have a trouble understanding his viewpoint, in, in part because it's clear Newcomb has some admiration for these people, but he also has some very racist beliefs as well uh, as far as his own culture's superiority. Now, my copy of his book was printed in 1993, so it's possible he's learned this by now, but just in case he needed to hear it, there are more things in heaven and earth, Mr. Newcomb, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Anyway, according to the Modoc people of Northern California, the world was once a small hill on the side of a lake. And then the greatest of all beings, Kumukumps, wove around the hill like a great basket. He created the world, then plucked hairs from his armpit to populate the world with people. The Olone, who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, believed they were the children of Coyote, who was fathering his second family, mind you, the first being a complete failure. But this time, Coyote had an idea for how his children would provide for themselves. He gave them nets and bows and arrows and told them how to make acorn mush. Afterwards, because he was so old, he got grumpy, told them to leave him the fucking alone, and he left along with his friends Hummingbird and Eagle, the three of whom had earlier survived a great flood and created the modern world after this. The Wallapai people live in eastern California. They say that people were made by Matavila, the creator, who lived alone on a peak. One day, he decided to create human beings because he was bored. He made each of the tribes by planting canes in the water. One of these became the Wallapai. In Southern California, the Cucupa 
say the world was made by the twin creators Komat and Sipa. And to make a long story short, after making people and the sun and a lot of other things, these two brothers got in a fight, and the result was that disease and death entered the world. California was a unique place, not because villages arose, but because they did so via intensifying an interesting mix of resources. Many people in the Americas found themselves living in villages based on growing the Three Sisters. But for most people in California, the two main storable food sources were acorns and salmon. Acorns became a widespread food source in California about 5,000 years ago, when mortars and pestles appeared. And around 3,000 years ago, this process really began to intensify. By then, we have evidence of dramatically rising populations, more complicated socio-political organization, and many of the societies which were met at contact began to, uh, began to take their modern form. This modern form included greater amounts of trade, sedentary villages, the use of shell beads as money, and, about 1,500 years ago, the bow and arrow. Acorns in California were collected from six different species of oak trees. The work was done by families each year in the exact same order, from least bitter to most bitter, which makes a lot of sense. At any rate, you might think that collecting acorns would be really easy to do in California, and frankly, you'd be correct in that. A family of four or five individuals would gather on average something like 15 tons of acorns over the two-week harvest. But that doesn't mean no other work was involved. Burning off undergrowth was an important activity, since that kept the floor clean of for, excuse me, since that kept the ground floor of the forest clear of debris and greatly facilitated acorn collection. These managed fires actually had a number of other uses too, since the new growth that followed included wild grain-bearing annuals as well as fresh plant shoots that were used to craft baskets. In, and ma making baskets was a major activity for Californian Indians. More on that in a moment, but first we need to finish up with the acorns, because right now all we've done is collect the acorns. That happens in the autumn, by the way. Afterwards, they need to be dried, cracked, hulled, and soaked in water to remove the skin. Then, the acorns need to be dried again and ground into a fine powder. Finally, tannic acid is going to be removed from the acorns by soaking the powder in water. And that's necessary because it's going to get rid of some of the bitterness of the nuts. And what we'd be left with is acorn flour which could be boiled in large baskets to make porridge or baked into bread in earth ovens or on heated rocks. Okay, back to basketry. Now, basketry was, of course, a very well-developed craft all over the Americas and all over the world. But in California, basketry was perhaps a more highly developed a technology than anywhere else on earth. Californians used twining and coiling techniques to make baskets for thousands of years and for a variety of purposes. Obviously, a lot of baskets were made for carrying and collecting acorns, or whatever else you might want to gather and carry in them, I suppose. But in addition, Californians made baskets used as winnowing trays 
Others were woven into basket hoppers to be used with grinding stones. Some baskets were used as scoops or shovels, others as storage or cooking vessels. Baskets were used to make cradles, hats, and of course ceremonial items such as the special baskets used by the, on the Claymath River for the jump dance, or the specially made baskets of the Pomo people who wove feathers completely around the outside of special baskets to be given away as gifts or destroyed as part of a funeral. Other baskets were used for hunting or fishing. Conical-shaped baskets were used to trap fish. Basket cages for catching birds like quail or woodpeckers. Larger baskets uh, cages were used for keeping pet eagles. Basket making in California was mostly the work of women, though men did construct traps and some larger items, and generally speaking, women would pass off the finished baskets to men and tell them to go collect the acorns. The largest baskets went beyond simple containers. They were fully-fledged granaries and were capable of holding over 1,000 pounds of acorns. Now, later European observers were especially impressed by the ability of California-made baskets to hold and carry water. Now, along the northwest coast of California, people also fished salmon. Salmon, salmon, I don't know. A resource that becomes less important as one travels south down the California coast. Now, shellmins become more common there, including which indicate the prevalence of shellfish as a greater food source, obviously. Now, fishing weirs were still used, just not for salmon. In the San Francisco Bay Area, hunting sea otters was a very important economic activity. Around Santa Barbara, people paddled out in canoes to fish in open waters with bone fish hooks and to hunt sea mammals with harpoons or at least some of them were, others, it appears, were busying themselves becoming craft specialists. The production of shell money for a much larger regional and interregional trade um, developed in Santa Barbara markets starting around 2,600 years ago. Now, these people uh, who were believed to have lived in Santa Barbara for at least 9,000 years were known as the, the Chumash at Contact. Around 850 years ago, they lived in a series of small but very complex chiefdoms. Their economy was based on shell bead money, and they lived in villages of more than 1,000 people. This complex culture was also marked by other types of craft specialization, intervillage confederacies, and long-distance trade. The overall population is believed to have comprised something like 10,000 people before the introduction of disease. Now, seafood was much less important, as you might imagine, for the part of diet, uh, as a part of the diet for Californians who did not live on the coast. Now, obviously, instead, these societies grew alongside the growth of acorn use, which greatly intensified over time. Um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, population changes made people leave the area around 1,500 years ago. But then, around 700 years ago, the Sierra Nevadas became cooler and wetter, and people returned as permanent residents. They built numerous villages along major rivers to exploit acorns, and a lot of these villages have been uncovered by archaeologists. In the Central Valley near Sacramento, groups of people lived in large villages on the valley bottom, with an economy based on acorns and fish. In the mountains and foothills, there were smaller, less specialized villages, though the economies were still focused on acorns. 
As populations grew over time, there was a greater importance put on acorns, and that went alongside declining mobility and a lessened importance of hunting and fishing. Now, I should point out that the use of pottery was rare in California, but the Sacramento Valley was home to a local pottery tradition. Um, I think pottery was rare in California because the region was home to a lot of plants that were able to be woven into baskets um, that were fully capable of not only transporting and storing acorns, but were able to be made waterproof. And it's hard to say exactly why some cultures preferred basketry to pottery. Uh, in many cases, though, there's no real advantage over one uh, over the other. Um, if you're able to make a basket tight enough to store water, unless you're in a part of the world where water is a, an especially rare resource, uh, because then with pottery, obviously, you can store water for a longer period of time. But otherwise, as far as pottery versus baskets goes, I don't know that there's any real general answer that would be applicable to all societies across the world. Uh, anyway, moving on. Most of the central valley of California was occupied by Penutian Yokots. Yokots? Yokots? I apologize. Uh, about 1,500 years ago, these people lived in large, dense populations with an elaborate ceremonial life a complex exchange system, and and who were experiencing continued population increase, with more settlements being founded until at least 700 years ago, and possibly up until the time diseases struck, sometime before European contact in California. At any rate, uh, by about 700 years ago, the Penutian Yokuts were also using shell bead money. Now, Evidence indicates that people didn't reside in the Colorado desert until about 1,500 years ago. But over the next 500 years from that point, people did move in, likely from a migration of human peoples along the Colorado River into the Colorado desert. In response to a creation of a huge lake called Lake Cahuila, which was located, which was created when the Colorado River broke its channel, flowed into a valley in the desert about 800 years ago, and for 300 years existed until this lake eventually started to drain into the Gulf of California. And when the Colorado River changed course again, it disappeared completely, which is why you won't find Lake Coahuila on any modern maps. Now, the sites which were found here were large camps that contained human artifacts. But it appears they were only used seasonally, perhaps suggesting that the human chiefdoms of the Colorado River established colonies in the Colorado Desert along Lake Coahuila. There is, in fact, evidence of three or four such lakes having formed in the same region over the last several thousand years. And so the human might very well have known just what to do when the lake appeared which was to build colonies to help them collect resources like fish, waterfowl, and marsh plants, but to definitely not depend on living there full-time, since one day the lake would disappear like all the others before it had. And that's just something interesting to consider, I think. Now, archaeologists have termed the society that formed in the southern Baja California as the Las Palmas culture. It formed about 1800 years ago. The Las Palmas people are known for their distinctive secondary burials in caves. They would bury and then uncover their deceased only once the skeleton remained. Then they took the now defleshed bones of their deceased, 
painted them red, and then finally carefully wrapped these in deerskins or palm fronds, a system of burials that seems to be unique. So they've drawn a lot of interest from archaeologists because of that. Now, the Las Palmas people got most of their food from marine sources of plants. They exploited a very wide range of resources in general, though, and some Las Palmas people seem to have been uh, specialized dolphin hunters uh, uh, instead, instead of this general um, uh, lifestyle of hunting and gathering. Excuse me. People migrated into central Baja California uh, from the north sometime around 1,500 years ago, and, and this resulted in what archaeologists call the Kamandu culture. Now, these people were hunter-gatherers armed with bows and arrows and a complex textile industry. And they replaced or absorbed earlier cultures in the region. All the ethno-historic Kamandu groups of the region speak the same basic language and, and, and very similar cultures. Now, in northern Baja California, a culture called the Patayan was replaced by human culture and horticulture about 1,000 years ago. But in this case, the Patayan actually might have been Yuman people or connected to the Yuman in some way previously. And it's less clear here than in the central Baja that earlier people were replaced. It seems more likely that Yuman peoples who were living in northern Baja were just slower than some of their Yuman neighbors in adopting horticulture. And, and it just instead of being replaced, they were just continuing to change their lifestyle. At any rate, we don't really know, though, or technically I should say that I don't really know. At this time, a lot of archaeological research has been accomplished in Baja, California, pretty recently, but most of it hasn't been published. Anyway, there you have it. So in total, though, California was home to more than 1,000 separate cultural groups by 1492. They spoke, they spoke uh, more than 90 languages that belonged to 23 different language families, a situation suggesting a history of complex population movements. And in fact, before the advent of disease, it has been estimated that something like in between 500,000 and 700,000 people lived in California, and that this level of population was reached about 2,000 years ago. So it would be nearly impossible for me to give an overview of all the various tribes of California in even a single episode devoted to only that region. But I think it is important nonetheless to try and give an overview of at least a couple of groups. The Modoc people, whose homeland lay between northern California and southern Oregon, and the Wallapai people, who live in eastern California and northwestern Arizona. By examining these peoples, Hopefully, I think we can better showcase the vast diversity within California. First, the Modoc, who lived rather contentedly in their homeland, Lake Tule, which was the center of a disc-shaped world, according to Modoc myth. Here they found abundant game, deer, elk, antelope, a variety of birds and fish, rich plant life with plenty of seeds and tubers, and likewise, plenty of reed grasses, excellent for weaving baskets. They 
Excuse me, I have the hiccups a bit. They first arrived in the general vicinity as part of the Claymath tribe, several centuries after a volcanic eruption had ended the lives of many of the previous inhabitants of the valley of Upper Claymath Lake, and then began to separate from the Claymath cult. Claymath culturally after another volcanic eruption about 700 years ago. And this brought the Modoc people uh, a bit farther south to Lake Tule. They lived alongside the Claymath, with whom they had a, quote, relationship of cool friendship, unquote, and near the Pitt River Indians, whom the Modoc despised and raided with regularity, and also the Paiutes and Achamawe with whom they both shared a border on Goose Lake, and whom, uh, both of whom the Modoc hated and saw as inferior, and also with the Shasta, who the Modoc feared and respected. So as you can see, before the coming of Europeans, everything was not all peace and sunshine all across the Americas, and neither was it an empty place. But food was plentiful. In addition to a variety of animals which were hunted and fished, Modoc women harvested wild potatoes, desert parsley roots, and the seed of a pond lily called wokus, which was the most common vegetable food used by the Modoc, and was eaten after being ground into flour or boiled and eaten whole. As is common with hunter-gatherer societies, the Modoc lived in separate summer and winter villages. Modoc winter structures were far more durable and elaborate. Winter houses might be round, elliptical, or rectangular. They were made from a, a frame of four pine or juniper logs, and these supported a roof of cottonwood, cedar, or pine in the form of planks or uh, poles. Over these rafters, the Modoc placed woven mats, another use of California basket technology. And then these were covered with more wooden planking, and finally with about one foot of earth, making the, very, the structures very warm in the cold winters of Northern California. Modoc homes were pit houses, that is, they were dug into the ground, around four foot deep, and one entered via a staircase that led to the roof and then down a ladder to the inside of the home, and these homes would last for about three years before being rebuilt. Modoc society was led by a three-pronged leadership structure. On top of the village was the civil chief, or Logi. This person was always a man, and the Logi dominated domestic politics. The position was achieved in part by a person's ability as an orator, and in part by how many followers, and in part by how wealthy he was. The Logi needed to have good oratory skills because no matter how, wealth, how much wealth and how many followers he had, he didn't actually have much direct power except for the power of persuasion. First off, the Logi was elected. And beyond that, while the Logi was free to call together other leaders of the tribe or even the entire village together so he might speak to them, Modoc people were free to choose whether or not they even wished to attend such an event. And if Alagi tried to bring together the tribe for unimportant matters, they might choose to not attend the meeting at all. The Alagi was expected, though, to act as arbiter of disputes between families, though major cases would be solved usually by the entire tribe meeting an assembly. And while the Alagi called such a meeting, any man or woman in the tribe was free to speak for as long as they wished during these meetings. 
So for all of these combinations of reasons, you can see how important it would be for the Loggy to be a good public speaker. Now, the Loggies primarily uh, presided over crimes of theft, slander, and murder. And murder was recognized in four levels in Modoc society. There was intentional murder, accidental death uh, was another This uh, that occurred during a quarrel, um, a third was accidentally, accidental killing, uh, usually as the result of a hunting accident, and four, justifiable homicide. Now, what the Lagi did not do is go on war parties. In fact, this was strictly forbidden in Modoc society as a safeguard against jeopardizing the entire village or tribe through the success or failure of one single war party. That is exactly why the position of war chief existed. The position of war chief was achieved by a demonstration of ability in battle, and this person was formally installed to the position for life. However, it was common for elderly men to resign the position, and in the case of incompetence, a war chief could be deposed. But unlike the Loggi, the war chief had no followers, nor any power to conscript any followers. If a war chief wanted to go to war, he was bound by the same restrictions that kept a Loggi from accumulating too much power. He had to make his case for why he wanted to go to war at a meeting, and then he checked to see who wanted to go with him. So, except under unusual circumstances, or if the war chief was of particularly great stature within the community, few Modoc men often went with him on these raids. And so, as a result, Modoc war parties were generally pretty small, often just 10 or 20 men, uh, though parties of 100 or more might arise in rare cases. And the goal of these war parties, uh, well, it was the same as war parties anywhere else. They went about to capture slaves, to take scalps as trophies, and to pilfer loot. Their principal weapon was the bow and arrow, and each warrior would be armed with about 40 or 50 arrows. Now, it was very important for a war chief to influence the outcome of a raid by getting help from the spirits. But the war chief had no power over these. This was the purview of the shaman. Unlike the war chief or the Lagi, a shaman might be a man or a woman. Modoc shamans were individuals who obtained their position after receiving the call during a dream and then embarking upon a quest, whereupon the shaman would obtain his or her powers in the form of songs given to them by spirits. The more songs a shaman was given, the more power they would have. And these songs enabled them to accomplish cures and to work various other types of magic, like changing the weather or bringing death or illness to enemies. In Modoc society, shamans wore a red buckskin skullcap decorated with woodpecker feathers, and they received fees for their services. All right, moving on to the Wallapais, who were Yuman speakers. They live along the Colorado River in modern-day Arizona and California, and they have done so for at least thirteen or 14,000 years. A site called Willow Beach on the east bank of the Colorado River contained pieces of pottery used by the Wallapai that date to about 1,350 years ago. Excuse me, I said thirteen to 14,000. thirteen to 1,400 years ago. Wallapai culture is not tens of thousands of years old. Okay, anyway. Wallapai culture, though, did not change a whole lot from about 1,300, 1,400 years ago until the arrival of Europeans of horses, though. 
They farmed the three sisters with a diversity of irrigation techniques. They built diversion dams in some places. In others, they used irrigated canals by diverting water sources. And on the Colorado River itself, they simply took advantage of annual spring flooding to grow their crops. Members of the various Wallapai bands had rights to cultivate crops at one or another of these irrigated fields, but they were not sedentary people. They relied heavily on game and wild plant products, and they moved in a seasonal pattern like many other groups in California. As a result, the Wallapai and many Californian groups were much healthier than sedentary farmers. They suffered from few ailments until the arrival of disease from Europeans, and like the Modoc, Wallapai shamans were important. These were individuals who received their powers from quests and sang songs to enact their magic. Now, the Wallapai were split themselves into three separate tribes. These territories were in some ways more social than they were geographic, since natural resources and especially water needed to be shared. And, like I said, the people weren't entirely sedentary. And another crucial resource was a single cave in Diamond Creek Canyon, and that contained a rich deposit of red mineral pigment. Access to this cave was shared between the three Wallapai tribes. The pigment itself was mixed with deer tallow and was valuable as an artistic and religious resource. The Wallapai made quite a living for themselves as middlemen in the trade as their homeland was between the Californian cultures closer to the coast and the peoples of the southwest. They traded their red pigment for shells from the west and corn and pottery and blankets from the east and formed a key component of the western trade nexus. Now, incidentally, or technically very much connectedly, dramatic changes took place west of California in the Great Basin Cultural Region about 2,000 years ago. Pinion seeds, which had been used as a food for thousands of years on a sparing basis, became a major resource. The people of the Great Basin, likewise, began using snares to catch rodents, which would supplement their diets. Storage facilities began to be built, and pottery appeared in the Eastern Basin around 2,000 years ago. It started to spread, and by 600 years ago had spread across the entire region. Likewise, around 800 years ago, excuse me, 1800 years ago, the bow and arrow diffused to the region. Now, by about 1500 years ago, populations in these places were increasing and had largely become sedentary. In the western parts of the basin, marsh resources from a number of lakes which existed supplemented the economy of the cultures there. Now, things were going quite swimmingly for these agriculturalists who experienced population growth and found that their hunting of small game and rodents began to be supplemented by much more large game as well. The climate was getting a bit cooler in the region, and uh, as a result, large game became more plentiful at this time. But this wasn't to last for everyone. About a thousand years ago, new people arrived in the Great Basin from the southwest, and over the next 400 years, they spread, out in the, they spread to the northeast throughout eastern Oregon and parts of Wyoming. This is no, known as the Numic Expansion. Starting in Oregon, the classic pithouse villages were replaced by small wickiup-like structures. Villages in the lake basins disappeared altogether, and new ones were established in the alpine zones. As the agricultural groups in the south and east either disappeared or were replaced by these hunter-gatherer newcomers. 
There is, in addition, a sudden diffusion of new types of pottery in the region, and changes in burial traditions from cemeteries to isolated burials. Finally, the Numic peoples speak a different language group than the other groups of the Great Basin. So all of this seems to add up to a likely conquest of the region around a thousand years ago. But farther south in the Great Basin, agricultural societies continued on in Utah, Arizona, and Nevada. In Nevada, ancestral Puebloan peoples formed until about 800 years ago, but we already talked about them. A culture that archaeologists have turned the Fremont culture existed in Utah. Now, we don't know a whole lot about that culture other than that they lived a mixed agricultural and hunting-gathering lifestyle. They were primarily hunters and gatherers, but they also grew corn. In southern Utah, about 2,100 years ago, and in northern Utah, by about 1,800 years ago, we have evidence of corn, and corn got into southern Idaho by 1,200 years ago. Now, this is the same culture that was being replaced in Oregon and Wyoming just a couple hundred years later, but it continued on in these places. And in fact, the Fremont culture... Uh, continued on until it seems to collapse about 700 years ago. Now, we don't really know what happened since we know so little about them. If they were southwestern peoples, maybe they simply began moving back in the face of pressure from uh, the Numic expansion. Or perhaps, in a similar vein, if they were at the Paskin, they might have moved south and become the Apache and the Navajo. But Finally, it is possible that the Numic simply absorbed them or killed most of them. We really just don't know. But even the Mojave Desert contained a large population of people. In no small part because the region was a great source for a number of mineral resources. Most importantly, obsidian. And so here, many tools were made out of this valuable rock, and villages here uh, grew as it became, uh, as the region became integrated into the growing trade networks with California and elsewhere in the Great Basin and the Southwest. But about 900 years ago, the environment began to change. Many water sources were no longer permanent, but uh, instead depended upon the rainy season. And as a result, many villages were abandoned. And the trade in obsidian, and I should also mention turquoise, was somewhat disrupted. The people here uh, continued on, though. They traded for shell beads and other rare items, and as trade being important enough that even after the disappearance of much of the water, a few major villages continued on in the Mojave Desert, the people here mainly living on rabbits, deer, rodents, reptiles, and tortoises. Now... Raven is a trickster, according to the Haida, Tlingit, and Simshan peoples of the northwest coast. Raven did not create the world, but he did transform Earth into the way it is today. The Haida say people built the Earth out of dust, which he laid down atop the ocean. The Kitimat people say Raven did this because he wanted to rest, and that after he created land, he made plants and animals and people which he did by making them out of clay and wood. In the Pacific Northwest, life began to change in a number of ways as a result of an increased usage of salmon, a storable resource when it is smoked. Large villages became very common, 
And with these growing villages, complex social institutions developed. And this turned into a culture which archaeologists, who, as we all know, are terrible at naming things, called the Developed Northwest Coast Pattern, or DNWCP. You know, archaeologists really should run the names they think up past other non-archaeologists to make sure they aren't stupid-sounding. But at any rate, the fact that salmon are only widely available to be caught for a brief period of time while they spawn was probably a big reason why the people of the Pacific Northwest developed storage technology and capturing techniques to increase the salmon yield each year. Planning for the annual salmon runs required technically proficient managers to run fishing operations, and over time, this led to a stratified society. Now, these new ruling classes began to consolidate their power by controlling resources, as ruling classes are apt to do. This led to a substantial increase of warfare on the northwest coast. About 5,000 years ago, the evidence of warfare on the coast is what researchers call sublethal. People fought, but there doesn't seem to be organized war groups who went about trying to kill enemies. But by 3,500 years ago, evidence indicates warfare had become more lethal. This process continued, and by 1,800 years ago, some villages were fortified and the bow and arrow was in use. In response to increased violence, people of the Northwest began wearing body armor made out of wood or bone. This, in turn, led to a change in arrowheads from stone to bone. Bone tips were more effective, generally, in piercing this armor. Now, by 1,100 years ago, in fact, defensive fortified sites become common in the region. Now, control of natural resources like good hunting grounds or salmon breeding grounds caused warfare in the Northwest as it did in many other parts of the world. But it is also likely that people went to war uh, to obtain war captives for slaves. But it's not clear that, exist, that, slave, that this happened until about 1,500 years ago. But, so slavery might have developed out of warfare rather than been a source of warfare at least originally? We don't know. But because all of this conflict, a major shift in settlement systems took place, and the numerous small villages of the northwest coast began consolidating into much larger villages, centered in resource-rich areas and generally situated in defensive locations. And over time, the change from larger villages meant an even greater emphasis on storable resources, primarily salmon. And by about 1,500 years before the present, these new stratified chiefdoms with controlled, storable food sources, a culture that archaeologists call the DNWCP for short, was present across the entire northwest coastal region. Now, if you think these sorts of societal advances, and I say that in air quotes, took place first in the more southern parts of the northwest coast, well, you'd be wrong. The DNWCP chiefdoms appear earlier on the northern coast, about 3,500 years ago. In Alaska and Canada, evidence of fish traps appear by about 5,500 years ago, and fishing weirs by at least 3,000 years ago. Now, I've actually built fishing traps before, and these are basically conical structures you weave together out of saplings and twine, and you can put them in tidal creeks where it's difficult for fish to maneuver, 
Now, a small trap obviously doesn't do much in a giant pond. You want a small stream or a creek. And you basically visit them during low tide and collect the trap and get whatever fish or crabs might be stuck inside the trap. Now, I imagine fish traps would be very useful for catching salmon. I've never used them for that. You could literally place them in places in streams where the salmon jump upwards, and then the poor fishies might end up jumping straight into your trap. Anyway, a fishing weir uses similarly uses the tide. What you do is build a V-shaped wall in a stream. You leave an opening at the bottom of the V, so it's really easy for fish to get funneled in, but very difficult for them to swim back out that same direction. You wait for the tide to go, start going out, and then you wade into the water with your friends and some spears, and pow! You got dinner for the whole village within minutes. Now, this same effect can even be created without the tides, because in shallow water, you simply build a wall a few yards away from the V so that the fish can get trapped that way too. Either way, uh, with a little time, there's, this is a great way of getting a lot of fish in a relatively short period of time. Northwestern peoples combined these techniques with salmon swimming, with the fact that salmon swam upstream each year en masse. And so you can see how this could develop into a very effective strategy for obtaining food. Now, in the Prince Rupert Harbor area, this lifestyle resulted in the creation of large shell middens around 3,500 years ago, which was followed by the construction of villages about 500 years later. At one site, called the Paul Mason site, and which is situated on the Skeena River, a village of rectangular houses existed about 3,000 years ago that even contained two rows along a street between them. And from this layout, it is believed that this village consisted of ranked groups, perhaps being organized into two separate moieties. These early villages show that the people of the Northwest were beginning to live in permanent villages. Nearby to the Paul Mason village, Another large village began to grow nearby around 2,500 years ago. This one just consisted of a single row of houses. Perhaps this was a village without moieties. We don't really know. We do know that the people of this site traded, uh, both traded and went to war with their neighbors from the over 100 burials which have been excavated from the site. Another two-row village was found at the nearby McNichol Creek site. And that one dates to about 1,600 years ago. Another site, the Namu site, was occupied from around 11,000 years ago until contact with Europeans in the 18th century. So this was obviously a pretty incredible place. It shows how successful that sa a salmon-based society could be. Still, study of the site revealed that at least two separate occasions, a substantial decline in the use of salmon occurred at 3,800 years ago and again at 2,400 years ago. And that's indicative likely of periodic failures in the salmon runs, probably as a result of warfare, but more likely this is a result of some sort of environmental condition that made salmon disappear. Excuse me, possibly as a result of warfare, but more likely. You can't be probably both. It is likely that these salmon failures, which were dangerous and difficult situations for these people, had something to do with the development of the complex ritual systems and stunningly beautiful creations of Northwestern artistic expression that developed, arising perhaps as these people attempted to deal with situations of crisis. Now, it is believed that slavery and warfare became regular parts of life for villagers of the Prince Rupert Harbor, Harbor around 2,500 years ago, 
Around that time, the cemeteries of the region began to show characteristic signs of the sorts of society that went to war a lot and captured slaves. That's because most burials of the cemeteries are male, and many of the burials appear to be warriors. Now, for a slave to be buried in a cemetery reserved for important people within a culture would require pretty extraordinary circumstances, other than them being sacrificed along with their master. So, the fact that few women are buried in the cemeteries of the region might indicate that slavery was present because most of the slaves would have been captured women. At least four classes of people existed in the society of the DNWCP. These were people without access to cemeteries and were buried elsewhere, um, or mostly. People buried in the cemetery, excuse me, there were people without access to cemeteries and were buried elsewhere. People buried in the cemeteries, but without any grave goods. People buried in cemeteries with items made of bone, special labyrinths, and other materials. And finally, people buried in cemeteries with materials from distant sources, such as copper items, shell beads, and amber. The final class in particular has only been found in one single cemetery, called the Boardwalk Site. And that indicates that the high-status people from across the region used this as a sacred ceremonial site for, for, um, as a cemetery. In the burials of common peoples, dog skulls and offerings of food are common items. It seems that many of these people were buried in shell middens, so it is very possible that these shell middens were not built as heaps of trash, as many researchers have thought, but instead were like the Sambakis of Brazil, and then they might have been purposefully constructed for burials. Whether or not the middens of the northwest coast were, per were purposefully constructed burial spots or they evolved into that use, the result was the same. These middens were not trash heaps but sacred places. Now, on the central coast of the northwest, near Vancouver, chiefdoms arose in the Gulf of Georgia and the Fraser River around 3,000 years ago. A lot of archaeological work has been done here in three uncovered sites, and from this, researchers constructed a, chronolo a chronology of three different cultural phases for the DNWCP. And while regional differences exist amongst the different cultures along the coast, this chronology has been broadly employed to build a history for the entire region. Now, the initial adoption of the DNWCP occurred around 3,300 years ago. It included the increased use of bone tools, labyrinths, and ca carved art. The economy of these people continued to get more specialized towards the use of salmon and shellfish during this time, though both land and sea mammals were also captured. But the big change was, was that the people of the northwest coast around 3,300 years ago began storing salmon in large numbers. And after that, the northwest coast continued to change. Around 2,500 years ago, the DNWCP people started constructing large houses. They created standardized art forms. Elaborate, elaborate burials started taking place, and evidence of clans appear, or what archaeologists who are terrible to talk to at parties would call large corporate household units. Two row villages of large rectangular plank houses, probably multi-family households for somewhere between 20 and 60 people, become present as well during this time. 
And it appears that a reorganization of labor into large social groups took place as well, along with a growing social order of elites, commoners, and slaves. These people created a stunning artistic style of carved stone and wood. Now, the bow and arrow diffused through the region as well during this period, and this became, and along with it, more fortified villages around 1800 years ago. Now, in the southern reaches of the northwest coast, the DNWCP cultural complex only appears after about 2500 years ago. People began living here in large villages of plank houses and engaged primarily in fishing, and uh, salmon, of course, was especially important along the villages situated near the Columbia and Williamette rivers. Sea mammals remained important on the coast, and terrestrial rivers were likewise important, so you can see some regional variations. Now, around 1,200 years ago, the people of the northwest coast began to more closely resemble the cultures who inhabited the coast at contact with Europeans. Which is to say, by then they were living in large permanent villages, built of substantial plank houses, with developed economies devoted to intensive procurement and storage of salmon and other resources. Complex social structures uh, had also uh, uh, evolved and that engaged in warfare and, most importantly, potlatching. Now, potlatch is a Chinook term. It literally means to give. But perhaps a better translation of potlatch would be to give a feast, because that's what a potlatch is. Though like a lot of Northwestern culture, the potlatch has regional variations. Now, amongst the Tlingit and Shimshan peoples, and I'm positive I'm saying that wrong, potlatches were used to mourn the death of chiefs. For the Haitas, potlatches were used to establish the rights of an heir in a maternal line. Likewise, this was the case for the peoples of British Columbia. But potlatches also contained similarities as well. In all of these ceremonies, the giving away of wealth was the central element. Well, I mean, besides the dinner. Never forget to feed your guests. Common gifts before the arrival of Europeans were storable food, canoes, slaves, and ornamental copper artifacts, which were significant sources of wealth in the world of the DNWCP. Copper would be beaten into shield-like sheets, shaped like a torso, and decorated with engraved or painted designs. And these were quite valuable amongst Northwestern peoples. The copper itself originated from Alaska and was very important symbolically to the Northwestern world. It was believed by one group, the Kwakwakawak, as the source of light in the world. Copper is the color of salmon, red bark uh, from cedar, and blood. So copper was very much a symbol for life itself for these people. Now, the various forms of art and artistic expression used by Northwestern people are talked a lot, a, a lot about by Westerners, and, and it's been viewed as quite valuable. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that quite yet with this episode. But before we move on, I'd like to talk about uh, the cedar house posts, which would be used to create entrance doorways to great houses, with the large, deeply carved and painted poles, which depict the stories of the occupants of the home. And these have been mislabeled as totem poles. Totem is incorrect. Totem, a totem is a guardian spirit of the natural world. It is obtained by individuals in the Algonquian-speaking Northeast during spirit quests. These stories told on the cedar entrance poles, in contrast, tell the inherited mythologies of households. 
No, so just that being quickly cleared up. On to the interior of the plateau, where people settled into greater sedentism and settlement developed. And you better believe that archaeologists have a name for this, the Plateau Pithouse uh, tradition, or the PPT for short. I mean, I guess that one rolls off the tongue a little easier, but the central question is always compared to what. And yeah, I guess PPT is a decent name if you compare it to the DNWCP. But really, it's literally as if archaeologists name ancient cultures sometimes in a way that ensures nobody wants to talk to them at parties. Anyway, the PPT began when small bands of highly mobile hunter-gatherers established large, semi-permanent villages sometime around 5,000 years ago. Now, why this occurred is something of a mystery. Perhaps climate changes reduced the amount of large mammals able to be hunted, and this created a focus on salmon resources on the rivers of the region. Or perhaps increasing warfare forced people to congregate for mutual protection. Whatever the cause... By about 2,500 years ago, these villages were pretty large. They were often comprised of over 100 pit houses. They were generally located along rivers near the best river spots, uh, excuse me, near the best fishing spots. Now, researchers aren't sure about whether these societies were as stratified as those that had developed on the northwest coast, but they did become stratified by around 1,700 years ago. The climate had began warming about 100 years before, And so there's probably a relationship between these two things, because once the climate began to get warmer on the plateau, a rapid population increase appears. Villages continued to grow, and the 100-plus pithouse-sized villages of the region become much more common. Though it is also fair to point out that most people probably lived in smaller villages of around 20 pithouses. Now, pit houses themselves varied in size. Some were about 6 meters, or 20 feet in diameter, but others could be as large as 20 meters. And it seems that some were for individual families and others were for multiple families. And nearby each house were storage pits and large ovens. Now, these people ate processed roots, hunted animals, and fished salmon. They used dogs as pack animals, domesticating them to carry sleds of salmon from fishing sites to villages. We don't know much about their burial practices, obviously not because people haven't looked, so that means that cremation was likely popular. Around 1700 years ago, the bow and arrow diffused into the region. The people here used barbed and notched arrow points, undoubtedly useful when hunting the many large mammals of the region. Finally, During this period, trade became much more important. Evidence of exotic items become common in the archaeological record. Now, around 1,200 years ago, the climate started warming significantly, and as a result, the large villages of the plateau began to shrink. The people didn't disappear, but far fewer chose to remain in the villages. And it's thought that the warming climate meant that drought and fires became more common in the region, and over time, people chose to move. Now, villages were larger in Canada than than farther south along the plateau, generally speaking, but some villages of over 100 pit houses did exist farther south, like the one found at at the Paquit Gulch site. This is in north-central Oregon. As the climate became warmer and drier, Forests retreated and grasslands developed. 
and the crunch on resources sparked an increase in violence. The villages of this area became fortified, and food storage pits sometimes appear as if they were purposefully hidden. And not to mention there's an increase in arrow wounds found in the skeletons. Anyway, on to the Great Plains. Though We're not actually going to talk about the High Plains too much. And that's because radical transformations will occur in the region in the years after contact with Europeans. And that's where the horse is introduced to the Americas. So I think we better save talking about that for later. Um, but with that in mind, I think the best place to tackle these sorts of transformations is within its own series. Because the Great Plains is hardly the only place that will be transformed in the 16th century as a consequence of the opening of the Atlantic. Now, obviously, the Americas will be the most transformed, but Europe, Africa, and the entire world will all uh, be significantly changed by these new connections. Now, Anyway, now that I've sidetracked the episode completely, let me continue where I left off. Um, now, as the centuries and millennia passed, things worked quite similarly on the high plains, much as they had all the way back to after the Clovis extinctions, in large part because agriculture wasn't practical on the high plains. And con- instead, people there continued to mainly hunt. Now, that isn't to say, though, that they didn't start eating agricultural foods. Corn was traded on the high plains for subsistence for at least the last since at least 3000 years ago. But with that said, buffalo was the definitive main economic driver for plains peoples even long before horses arrived. Before horses, dogs and dog sleds were the preferred method of transporting goods. In fact, the Blackfoot Blackfoot term for horse, ponokomita, is literally translated as elk dog. And so this indicates just how important dogs were to transportation, just from the name that they gave the horse, that it was a beast of burden as large as an elk. Now, without horses, the buffalo hunt required even more stealth than with horses, obviously. So discipline was incredibly important for buffalo hunters. Punishments for individuals who accidentally or purposefully alerted buffalo before the hunt were pretty severe. You could easily find yourself beaten or have your property confiscated or destroyed as a result of ruining the hunt. Besides food, buffalo were required by plains people for clothing, teepee construction, and for long-distance trade. Dressed buffalo skins were an especially valuable resource in the parts of America inhabited by people who did not live near the large animals. Now, in contrast to the high plains... People on the eastern, well-watered prairies of North America did engage in agriculture. They first experimented with growing crops and with pottery about 2,500 years ago. They were probably influenced by woodland cultures from the Mississippi region whose culture spread west. People on the prairie used a mixed economy of agriculture and hunting and gathering instead of being pure agriculturalists. Though it is clear... um, Though they had a clear cultural similarity in architecture with more eastern groups, they built similar burial mounds, for example. But I should also mention that the plains extended farther north than agriculture was possible, though, so that there were also people living in the northern prairie who did not farm. Um, In general, these people focused on hunting bison, but also hunted deer, elk, sheep, and many small animals. Um, 
Starting around 1,500 years ago, the bow and arrow was used, uh, diffused through the region and was used to hunt. Um, the people here collected a number of wild plants. Uh, corn, bean and, corn beans and squash diffused into the region, and they were grown, but they weren't particularly significant in diets until about 1,000 years ago. Um, that this happened about 500 years after the introduction of the bow and arrow in the region seems to me to indicate that these people might have overhunted a bit and were thus forced to farm more as a result. Um, as for the burial mounds and their belief system, uh, well, I think we should wait to get to the Mississippi and uh, the east because that's where a lot of this probably originated from. But on the other hand, there's no reason not to go ahead and talk about the fact that villages started to grow about a thousand years ago as a result of the increased importance of agriculture. These villages in the prairies were generally placed on the higher terraces of major rivers like the Missouri, the Platte, the Republican, the Arkansas, and the Red, while the floodplains of the valleys below were converted to farmland. Bison hunting remained important, though, and groups of plains people, people often ventured out from their villages and onto the high plains to hunt. Their settlements were small or medium-sized villages, perhaps 300 people on average, um, and they lived in settlements consisting of, on average, maybe 6 to 20 large semi-subterranean earth lodges. These were not pit houses, like we've previously discussed, and were used elsewhere in the West, but instead these earth lodges were constructed with heavy wooden superstructures, and then once the frame was finished, it would be covered with sod and soil. And this provided excellent insulation against the cold winters, and essentially these people were building people-sized hobbit holes, and that's pretty fucking cool if you ask me. But um, at any rate, remarkably, a lot of these villages of the prairie aren't fortified which means that warfare was not an important activity along much of the prairie. Although, I have to say, there's a notable exception of the Missouri River, where after agriculturalists extended all the way up the headwaters of this river, found themselves in conflict with High Plains people. And about 600 years ago, these newer villages were fortified. Now, the reason that prairie cultures were expanding was perhaps a consequence of them getting better at farming, but... These farming people didn't always succeed in colonizing the West. Now, one site in particular that archaeologists have discovered I want to talk about is named the Crow Creek site. About 675 years ago, Crow Creek was a well-fortified village. It was complete with a series of ditches, walls, and bastions that aided in the defense of the place, but nevertheless, unknown attackers penetrated these defenses burned the village, and massacred nearly 500 men, women, and children, estimated to be about 60% of the village's population, and buried these people in a mass grave in one of the fortification ditches just outside the walls. Many of these people were mutilated, some beheaded, and the number of gnaw marks indicate on the remains, on the remains indicate that they weren't really buried at all, but simply left to rot in the ditch. Now, one last thing I want to mention is that the plains were less populated, perhaps, than many other parts of North America, but by no means were they unpopulated. For example, another large site discovered in North Dakota on the Knife River was extraordinarily large. It contained over 100 earth lodges. It was fortified and was home to more than 2,000 people. 
Undoubtedly larger than the populations of many North Dakotan towns today, in fact. This place was still quite large, even after disease had spread through the continent. All the way up until the 1800s, it will one day again, we will visit it uh, with the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, at any rate, life is radically transformed about 300 years ago on the plains uh, when horses arrive. But like I said, we'll talk about that just a little bit down the line for now on or upwards to the subarctic upwards, northwards. We aren't spending a whole lot of time on the subarctic in this episode, similarly to the high plains, um, and that's actually a result of the success of the adaptation made by Athapaskan groups in the distant past more than anything else. Of course, that isn't to say that isn't to say that things didn't change over time. It's just that life was less radically transformed here than in areas of the Americas where agriculture became dominant. Around 2,200 years ago, pottery was introduced to the region. It was likely imported, along with groups from around the Great Lakes region who came north. Now, technically, we don't really know too much about these people or the culture that they created. But archaeologists have named it the Laurel Complex, a name which, as far as interesting names given by archaeologists to long-ago cultures, blows away the the names like the DNWCP and the PPT. Anyway, one Laurel village was discovered along the Winnipeg River in southern Ontario and was named the Ballinacre site. It consisted of three houses with hearths, some outdoor activity areas, which I presume is a term that means that archaeologists don't know what people did in these areas exactly, just that they were definitely there and doing something, And finally, the site contained a few storage pits. Now, I think I mentioned last episode that agriculture isn't possible in the subarctic. So these storage pits were used much more often for storing meat, which could be smoked, but also in such a cold climate, entire corpses could simply be stored for long parts of the year as well. And that's how Laurel people had enough to eat throughout the winter. Ballinacre was occupied from about 2,200 years ago to about 800 years ago, but it didn't change much in size, and that signals a pretty stable social structure, if not also population size for the region. People who lived in the Laurel culture buried their dead in small mounds. Some of these burials were secondary. Often the bones of the deceased would be perforated, that is, they would be pierced open, Why exactly anybody would do this is anybody's guess. But with that said, some guesses are better than others, and it is thought that perhaps the bones were opened as a way to release the spirit or the soul of the deceased person. Over time, the Laurel culture eventually evolved into two separate regional variants, and these people were the ancestors of the modern Cree and Ojibwe Indian tribes. Now, Balinacre and other subarctic settlements generally consisted of around 200 to 400 individuals, what archaeologists might call band-level organization. These bands congregated every summer and every winter for hunting. And in these types of systems of human organization, leadership often depended upon personal qualities and charisma, hunting knowledge and proficiency, Ritual and religious knowledge and generosity, these were basically the three main key traits to being a successful leader in the subarctic. Now, 
The people of the subarctic would eventually, or will eventually, be very tied to the fur trade. Oftentimes long before actual contact with Europeans, as native groups in the interior trade furs to natives closer to European settlements by the coast, and you know more on that in a later episode. As we continue, the people of the Alaskan Arctic say Raven made the world. In the Eastern Arctic, many people say that their ancestors were born from a spirit woman named Sedna. She was the protector of sea animals and with a dog, created human beings. A different Arctic story, though, says that two men were created from the earth, and one of them became pregnant, and he gave birth to every other living being. People with new microblade technology expanded into the Arctic, despite the seeming inhospitality of the terrain. Now, if you're wondering how or why this was possible, then we better discuss what microblade technology is. Now, microblades can be used in a number of various ways, but two really important ones are fish hooks, pretty useful for making a living along the coastal Arctic, and even more importantly, sewing needles. Microblades enabled the construction of winter coats and other clothing, capable of keeping people warm even in the harshest cold weather. Then, about 1,500 years ago, the es- ancestors of the Eskimo, the Thule people, began to expand across the Arctic Circle, and they did so with the aid of a variety of new technologies. Inuit people brought new weapons, bow and arrows for caribou and bear hunting, and they also had new harpoons with toggling heads. These were useful for hunting whales, seals, and walruses, or possibly walrusi. I'm pretty sure walruses is correct. Anyway, Thule people also carried multi-pronged spears for hunting birds, and a crescent-shaped knife called the ulu, which was used for the preparation of food and animal skins. They had new housing technology in the form of the igloo, a term which means home, Now, snow houses are normally presented as hemispherical structures, which would make them unstable, and they would collapse if you built one. So just FYI, before any of you bury yourself in the snow on accident, igloos were built of spirally ascending snow blocks in the shape of a parabola rather than a hemisphere. The igloos were constructed from snow blocks, cut with specially made shovels, and then fitted together. But perhaps... Most impressive of all of this new gear are those Thule technologies which were used for transportation, kayaks and the dog sled. Now, for millennia, dogs were used to help with hunting, but this new adaptation from hunting companion to pack animal allowed the Thule to expand from Western Arctic into the Eastern Arctic rapidly. Kayaks are likewise remarkable. Made of an animal skin, manually pulled over a wooden structure, these lightweight devices allowed Inuit people to minimize any ripples in the water which might alert possible prey. They are likewise exceptionally maneuverable, necessary in the icy environment. And thus the kayak is to this day the most copied and manufactured of all Native American vessels. In the West... The Thule were primarily whale hunters, but as they expanded east, they diversified their economy, hunting seal, walrus, birds, caribou, and muskox. Archaeologists mark this as the basic means by which we separate the classic Thule culture with the modern Inuit, as these people are now known. 
The so-called classic Thule culture consisted of large villages, larger villages and with more houses than more modern Inuit villages. And this is in part because of the necessity for larger labor pools in order to man whaling vessels. But as the Thule became better accustomed to their environment and better diversified in their diet, these larger villages shrank. Some people just left to go hunt different types of game. In addition, the climate got colder around 650 years ago, so actually some of the most northernmost villages were abandoned and people moved a little bit farther south. But anyway, as people moved east, uh, Inuit people moved east, some actually began to leave the Americas. They eventually expanded into Greenland by about 1200 AD. The Norse established several colonies on Greenland in 986. And thus, by reaching these colonies and then continuing eastwards beyond Greenland, the Inuit were not discovered by Europeans like any other Native American group. Instead, the Inuit themselves discovered Europeans. Now, Interestingly, while no evidence of disease exchange seems to have occurred between Norse and Native American populations, at least significant disease exchange, the Norse abandoned Greenland by about 1400 AD. Now, while traditionally it has been assumed that the Norse simply abandoned Greenland because the climate was shifting and getting colder, I think it's more likely that the Inuit, armed with a variety of superior technologies suited for this cold weather climate, pushed the Norse out. Who knows? Now, many Creeks and Choctaws believe the earth was made by a crawfish who dug up mud from the bottom of the ocean and then gave it to the eagle who turned this into an island. After that, Creeks and Choctaws came from the west they originated in the navel of the world or the backbone of the earth, wherever you choose, and they came up from the ground. They traveled east, they followed the sun, and found their homeland with the help of a red cedar pole. Other Mississippians might have believed that people were created from the sun, as Charles Hudson describes in his fictional interview with the high priest of Cusa. The high priest said that the son became very angry one day when he saw all the disorder on the ground. What with rabbit hopping around like a fucking lunatic, grinning up at him, the son. The horned serpent was smashing up foliage, stinking up the mountains with his foul breath. Well, the son got so angry that some of her menstrual blood fell onto the earth. Two drops, and these became man and woman. Now, in some ways, talking about the southeast and the northeast as two separate places can be a little misleading because in some ways there's going to be a lot of cultural overlap in parts of these reasons, largely as a result of the extensive system of rivers, especially the Mississippi, hence the name Mississippian chiefdoms. And so there's certain cultural overlap because of the long-scale trade networks that develop as a result of this. So we're going to discuss Mississippian culture first, then move on to the parts of the Northeast to discuss the large confederacies there, which were distinctly not Mississippian. Now, in addition, there were chiefdoms that ran down the Atlantic coast from Virginia to Florida, which we won't be talking a lot about today, but which share some Mississippian traits and some traits of the Northeastern chiefdoms, which were not, as I said, Mississippian. 
But so basically the rest of this episode, we're going to spend on both the Northeast and the Southeast. We're kind of going to combine them into one region to better understand the history of both. We're going to start in the Northeast. And then after we get into late Mississippian times, I'm going to focus on the Southeast. And then after that, I'm going to return to the non-Mississippian parts of the Northeast, and we will end the episode there. Now, the development of agriculture played a substantial role in the history of the Northeast. Corns and beans, first domesticated in Mesoamerica, were relative latecomers to the woodlands. But Native Americans here began experimenting with squash around 7,000 years ago. A thousand years later, they were using squash gourds as containers, which have been discovered by archaeologists in Maine and Pennsylvania. But the first solid evidence of domesticated squash, though, doesn't actually take place until about 4,300 years ago. So it's possible this technology may have taken some time to spread into common practice. But the first clear evidence of squash farms exists in New York and date to about 3,000 years ago. Squash appears to be a latecomer to the gardens of early northeastern agriculturalists, though. Evidence of other domesticated plants actually dates to a little earlier. By 3,500 years ago, people were growing goose food, sunflowers, and marsh elder. Sunflowers, goose foot, and marsh elder are all plants that produce a lot of seeds. And for that reason, uh, that they produce so many scenes, is probably why people were able to domesticate them. Now, maize arrived sometime before 2,300 years ago. It diffused into the east and joined with native crops. It had reached New York by about 2,300 years ago, after the development of a couple of new varieties of corn, northern and eastern flint corns. Now, these plants were adapted to colder regions, which is, just so you know, a stunning feat of genetic engineering that was not matched by Europeans until the 1800s, just to throw that out there. Now, your corn was in southern Ohio around 1600 years ago, and by about 1200 years ago, the three sisters had become very important in the region, along with sunflowers. And by 1,000 years ago, farming, according to Mark Pillar, author of A Prehistory of North America, had, quote, the pillar of subsistence economies across all, all across eastern North America as far north as climate would, persist, per, would permit. Excuse me. A big change occurred with the use of mounds in the region as people began to form. People were building mounds for the purposes of religious rituals and for marking territory for thousands of years. But as they started farming, they became sedentary and started building mounds used for burials. Now, we don't know a whole lot about how these early agricultural societies operated. It isn't clear that whatever rituals were taking place built on earlier religious ceremonial mounds weren't still taking place, or if new rituals were developed along with the changing times, just as you know, one example of the sorts of things that are unclear to us today about these people. But we do know that the new burial mounds were places where elites were buried and that most other people were cremated. But beyond that, they might also have served as places where bodies were processed in ritual spaces and not just buried. And further, they were probably territorial markers in a way that also served as cemeteries. 
But with that said, quite a bit of the complexity that develops in the eastern north in the northeastern woodlands uh, happened while people still relied little on farming. Hunting, gathering, and seafood provided a great deal of subsistence for these people. The large-scale public works projects, like mound complexes, started to develop before agriculture, for example, although after agriculture they did become more important. Likewise, pottery developed along a similar timeline. It was first present all the way back around 4,500 years ago, but it wasn't widespread until about 3,000 years ago, and obviously had taken on an even greater importance for people's lives once agriculture began to take hold. Now, all of that is just about enough to convince me that the people of the eastern woodlands didn't really change their religion or beliefs much as a result of the introduction of agriculture, except for one last piece of evidence. 2,300 years ago, smoking pipes became found, become found, indicating that tobacco had likewise been domesticated, and native uses of tobacco were quite different than what we're used to today, because it was such an important part of religious ceremonies back then. And I don't want to get into tobacco use yet, because it's going to be pretty hilarious when Europeans are introduced to this powerful narcotic, but, um, you know... It seems to me that if people weren't building tobacco pipes and then started, that you probably got some new stuff going on. Um, now, archaeologists call this the Adena complex. Essentially, it started sometime around 2,500 years ago, in, of all places, Ohio. That's when a number of groups in the central Ohio Valley began to construct large mound complexes. Now, most of the mounds were burial mounds, but others contained ritual space that served unknown functions. It isn't now. It's clear that Adena isn't just one culture. I just want to make that clear. But a, a, it's actually a number of cultures in Ohio that all shared similar traits, probably a similar religion, and all of them started building mound complexes. The Adena sites were likely more socially and politically complex than anything before, and. I say that because the mound building they engaged in required control of labor as well as economic surpluses to feed and reward those who did the work. And all of this would have required a pretty sophisticated organization. But we don't really know about too much about how any of that would have operated. Really, the only thing archaeologists do know about the Adena is about their mortuary behavior, since most of what has been worked on as far as Adena sites are the burial mounds. Now, these tend to be small, and only a few of them contain any domestic structures. So it appears that Adena populations might have been widely dispersed, living in farmsteads who gathered together at mound sites for special purposes, like burying the dead or conducting other ceremonies, or to build the mound. Or, otherwise, if they did live in large villages, then these were probably... In diff then they must have been in different places than at the mound sites and have remained undiscovered. Now, Adena people buried their deceased in small, log-lined tombs. They, these contained few personal grave goods um, and were painted with red ochre or sometimes other pigments, and the tomb and grave goods were then burned and covered with earth, which created a mound over the burned structure. As tombs accumulated, the mound grew. The largest of the Adena mounds was 67 feet high. 
Some of the mounds had small occupation sites on top of them, but it is not really known who lived in them, though I would suspect some sort of priest or shaman is a likely suspect. Unless perhaps the relatives of the deceased would gather and stay at these sites on occasion, perhaps to feast with their dead uh, ancestors. I, who knows? Um, Adena graves often contained copper artifacts, marine shell ornaments, and mica sheets cut into the shapes of heads or hands. In addition, obsidian tools and other materials from distant sources um, are found. So, so clearly some sort of extensive long-distance trade was going on. The copper came from Michigan. The shells came from Florida. And as the Adena period progressed, the mounds became more elaborate. Burials changed from primary burials to secondary burials of ochre-painted bones. In addition, people um, started building new types of mounds, geometric shapes or representations of animals, and we have no idea why they did this today, but clearly they have some sort of religious metaphorical purpose. Although I did see once on the History Channel that many ancient alien theorists believe that people did not build them at all. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Now, Adena complex, the Adena complex spread throughout the region, from Ohio into Delaware, New Jersey, New England, and the Maritimes. People in these places had contact with and were influenced by the people of the Ohio Valley. A lot of materials found in Adena was, has also been found in these places in the burial mounds that were excavated there. So it's clear that these were, uh, but it's also clear that these were local people who in contact with Adena because most of the gra grave goods were locally produced. So what happened wasn't a migration of people out of Ohio as much as a migration of religious ceremony. Now, to be clear, all of this happened long before the introduction of corn. The Adena complex diffused north and east sometime around 2,700 years ago. Corn arrived about 2,200 years ago. Now, as time went on and corn diffused through the region, the Adena complex was transformed into something different, a new cultural phenomenon that archaeologists call Hopewell. Long-distance trade continued to be important within the Hopewell. Widespread and substantial long-distance trade networks, in fact, took place such that it has the name the Hopewell Interaction Sphere. But Hopewell culture didn't penetrate New England or the coastal Middle Atlantic like Adena did, although in both of these places corn and new pottery styles were adopted, um, so it's not like people stopped having contact with each other. But at, for the northern maritimes, uh, though, agriculture was not possible. I should also point that out. Uh, this place was occupied by the people who will become the Dorset Indians. At any rate, uh, with that said, many other native groups in the northwest, northeast did build much larger mounds and sites. And these Hopewellian sites, like Adena before them, don't represent a single culture, but instead a number of cultures who all shared three basic features. Mound building, obviously. Hopewellian pottery for two, and lastly, elite burials containing personal ornaments and raw materials. Now, the, the mounds themselves, I should say, weren't just randomly placed piles of dirt, but instead were carefully constructed layers of select earths, clays, stones, and gravels that were placed in tombs, and then these were covered with a durable mixture of sand and clay. 
Now, Hopewellian people built a variety of other mounds. Some were linear, others were geometric, and some were embankments. Now, some of the linear mounds were built to enclose specific areas, including groups of circular mounds on the tops of hills. The Hopewell site, for which the culture is named, consists a num- of a number of mounds enclosed within a number of ditches and embankments. Some of the mound complex were connected by long parallel embankments that may have been roads, though it's unclear what the function of these places were, since it doesn't appear that they were villages. It is believed that Hopewellian people, like Adena people, probably lived in dispersed farmsteads in the surrounding areas. So perhaps the mound centers were just centers for elites, because a lot of different leaders do also appear to exist in Hopewellian societies, shamans, political figures, war leaders, and uh, not to mention a lot of women. Along with uh, some other evidence, this indicates the presence of a stratified matrilineal clan-based social system. Now, it doesn't appear that many people lived on the mounds, like we said, so we don't know a whole lot about their economy or subsistence, but Corn and local foods like goosefoot and knotweed appear to have been important, as were tree nuts, hunting and gathering, and fishing. Now, trade increased from Adena times, and archaeologists call this growing economy, like I said, the Hopewell interaction sphere. And a lot of really amazing artifacts dating from this period have been unearthed by archaeologists who, mind you, did so by digging up the graves of people's ancestors. And these artifacts include copper panpipes, shell bowls, carved uh, mica sheets, ear spools, large obsidian blades, pipes and axes of polished stone, elaborate pottery, and other uh, items of copper, silver, shell, and stone ornaments uh, are found in these burials. And this suggests a very wide-ranging trade network. But not everything was peaceful. Because human skulls, quite possibly kept as trophies, are also commonly found in the graves of war leaders. Now, but about 1700 years ago, the Hopewell system started to decline. We don't really know why it doesn't appear to be environmental. Conditions actually appear to have improved. But the bow and arrow was introduced, and this might have contributed uh, to a decimation of game or an increase in warfare. Uh, or both, but to be honest, um, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence of any sort of great social upheavals, like death by warfare or starvation or mass migrations. Um, Rather, the evidence seems to indicate that people simply stopped performing Hopewell ceremonies. They weren't building complexes and mounds that marked the Hopewell culture, and mound building itself persisted in a few places. But most Hopewellian artistic traditions largely disappeared, along with an apparent decline in the interregional trade around 1,600 years ago. Now, on the other hand, during this time, farming and corn continued expanding north, and as well became more important, such that by 1,200 years ago, it was a staple. Settlements at this time were small, and uh, had where most people lived in dispersed hamlets and villages, but... As corn became more important, these small villages grew into larger villages. Many of these became fortified, and which indicates warfare was present, and a number of groups became very complex, including the Powhatan and the Iroquois. 
But back in Ohio, people were continuing to build mounds. These had changed, though, from the conical mounds of Hopewellian times to linear and effigy mounds, some with burials. Perhaps the most famous example um, of, is uh, at the Fort Ancient site, um, and we call this the Fort Ancient Culture, the Fort Ancient Mounds. People here constructed the famous Serpent Mound and connected themselves um, culturally more to the south than earlier Adena or Helpwellian cultures. Their trade items, village organization, which consisted of houses around a central plaza, and mortuary practices suggest that the Fort Ancient culture wasn't exactly Mississippian, but it was very Mississippian-like. And eventually the people of this place in particular will evolve into the ethnographic Shawnee. Now in the southwest, uh, excuse me, southeast meanwhile, People, likewise, began farming local domestic crops on a substantial scale. They did this about 2,700 years ago, and at which time pottery, likewise, began to diffuse into the region. Corn came about 2,000 years ago, but it wasn't an important crop in the area, um, as it, and just like in the Northeast, until about 1,200 years ago. Both, uh, hunting and gathering remained very important, and, and some groups were influenced by the Adena complex of the Northeast, but more Southeastern peoples were influenced by Hopewell. Uh, when that diffused south from the northeast, and just like in the northeast, southeastern burials at this time consisted of panpipes, shell and stone in ornaments and bowls, um, sheets of mica cut into the shapes of heads and hands, ear spools and pottery, and all of this would be buried with the dead, and most of which would be imported. But around 1,700 years ago, this trade network declined. It is possible that this is the result of the introduction of the bone arrow. And whatever the case, Hopewell was gone by about 1,500 years ago. After the collapse of Hopewell, agriculture became more important, corn in particular. Mound construction slowed overall. And just like in the Northeast, despite the fact um, that Hopewell culture disappeared, large settlements grew and southeastern societies remained very complicated complex, but they had just simply became more culturally diverse, I would say. Around 1,200 years ago, around the time corn became dominant across the region, ranked societies began to develop in the densely rich valleys where the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers meet. Now, during Hopewell times, vast trade networks connected individual towns to one another through trade and apparently religious beliefs. But here and now, the largest towns began to consolidate political power over their neighbors. In any other part of the world, we would call this the formation of a state. But in the prehistoric past of the United States, the preferred nomenclature by people who are not me, but which to, to which I sometimes acquiesce in their language, is chiefdom. In fact, chiefdom, complex chiefdom, and paramount chiefdom. The Mississippian culture state formation in the prehistoric U.S., doesn't really refer to any specific society, but rather a number of complex chiefdoms, paramount chiefdoms, and whose power waxed and waned in the same way that states did elsewhere in the world from about 1,200 years ago till about 400 years ago. Now, I'm sure some of you might scoff at the idea of me calling the Mississippian chiefdom states, but I also have a feeling that by the time I'm done describing to you what I've learned from studying the so-called Mississippian chiefdoms, I might just change a few of your minds. 
Now, all Mississippian groups shared a common basic structure, and that consisted of a complex or hierarchical political and social organization which was able to organize and control labor. And in addition, they had a large-scale agricultural economy based on corn, beans, and squash, especially corn. And they all shared a common ideological or religious system. Now, that last point is important because we've been talking about chiefdoms, complex chiefdoms, and paramount chiefdoms all episode as they existed in various parts of North America. But none of these people were Mississippi. Mississippian, but they did, in my opinion, in a number of places live in states. But at any rate, the capitals of Mississippian chiefdoms were major political centers that exercised control over larger over a larger region and contained a number of levels or tiers below this. Now, at the bottom of these societies were the small dispersed farmsteads and, fall, and small settlements that existed without mounds, you know, the backbone of society. Each of these settlements would have owed allegiance to a small regional center with a number of small mounds. These centers would have owed allegiance in turn to larger regional centers with a larger number of mounds, and these in turn owed allegiance to a monumental capital. Various chiefdoms had control over differing numbers of tiers, the largest are called paramount chiefdoms by archaeologists. These actually contained an additional tier in that their power structures um, uh, uh, involved obtaining tribute over and dominating other nearby chiefdoms, complex chiefdoms, I should say, in some cases. Um, now, excuse me, Mississippian chiefdoms became dependent upon corn because when eastern flint corn was adopted, it began to create major surpluses for the people who did so. This led to population increase, and as a result, Mississippians survived on fewer resources than their prede predecessors, partly because overpopulation uh, had stressed wild game populations. For most Mississippians' people's diets, Seafood was more important than hunting, and that isn't to say that hunting and gathering weren't still important, because they were, as were beans, after 1,000 years ago. Extensive trade networks continued in the Mississippian era as well. Copper came from the north, shells from the coast, and precious stone from the mountains. Mound building changed, though, during Mississippian times. Unlike the earlier conical mounds from Adena and Hopewellian times, Mississippians constructed large platform mounds, specifically as a place for high-status elites. Perhaps these were built as public demonstration of their power. Like Adena and Hopewell burials before, Mississippian, Mississippian burials of elites occurred in special burial mounds and often featured the deceased being placed in a log-lined tomb. Burials often contained copper artifacts, beads, and special pottery. Mississippian commoners, on the other hand, were placed in separate cemeteries with utilitarian items or nothing at all. Now, the earliest Mississippian societies emerged in the American bottom, around the central Mississippi Valley, the same area where Hopewellian cultures had once emerged and then long dissolved into smaller communities of farmers. But around 1,200 years ago, these people once again started to coalesce into larger political units a development that went alongside an abrupt increase in the production of corn. Hunting and gathering and fishing were vital sources of food, 
but they became secondary in importance to agriculture. This leaves researchers actually with a question whether or not larger populations were forced to greater corn production or whether greater corn production led to larger population sizes. Probably both. By 1,000 years ago, Mississippian ideology and organization spread across much of the southeast. But these groups adapted it to their own conditions. And by about 850 years ago, there was a great deal of variety in Mississippian chiefdoms. And shortly after this, though, Mississippian chiefdoms actually declined in some places. Growing warfare led to settlements being fortified, though basic subsistence systems did not change. And social complexity in these peoples remained high. Now, while the Mississippi period did decline in some places, around 650 years ago, areas of the American bottom, for example, lost population. And we don't know why, but a changing climate or poor farming techniques or some other environmental cause are suspected. But in other places, Georgia, for example, Mississippian groups were at the height of their power and complexity at the time of contact with Europeans. In fact, the most complex Mississippian group encountered by Europeans will be the Natchez, who lived on the Mississippi River. At any rate, let's take a closer look at some of the individual Mississippian sites which have been excavated. Frankly, there's no better place to begin than Cahokia, perhaps the most famous North American site in North America, and certainly the most famous Mississippian site. The reason for this is pretty simple. Cahokia consists of over 120 mounds, making it the largest of all mound complexes in North America. Beyond this, Monk's Mound, named after some monks who lived there in the 1800s, is the largest single mound in North America. Now, much of the site is now a state park, and it's actually a pretty neat place to visit, though a bit out of the way. And just on a side note, all the best parks are kind of out of the way from the interstate system. At any rate, Cahokia, in addition to the mounds, also contained a woodhenge, likely for some sort of astro astronomical ceremonies. Basically, this is a wooden stonehenge. Beyond this, thousands of acres of residential structures surrounded the site. Now, the population of Cahokia isn't known. Estimates for the city range from between 50,000 and 10,000 people, so probably somewhere in that range. Now, at any rate, many of the burials, uh, many of the burial mounds, excuse me, contained very elaborate burials. Mound number 72 contained 272 individuals, including one burial of a 40-year-old male who was laid down on a bird-shaped platform and was accompanied into the afterlife by 20,000 shell beads. Now, not all of the burials and mounds were of high-status individuals. 120 young women, aged 14 to 25, were found in Mound 72 as well, in four separate burials. The poor skeletal health of these ladies is indicative of low social status. Quite possibly, they were the victims of human sacrifice. Other burials in Mound 72 included individuals who were beheaded or had their hands removed. Generally speaking, elites in Cahokia were much healthier than the common people who ate mostly corn and fish. The Cahokian nobility ate a much more diverse diet. Now, Cahokia was a political capital. Uh, the city controlled other territories. As, a, as such, the city was, it was the center of a vast trading sphere where trade goods traveled hundreds of miles. 
Some archaeologists believe that Cahokia, given its location in the American bottom um, on the Mississippi River, was something of a gateway. A place where goods from the Great Lakes and up the Missouri River could be collected and traded farther south along the Mississippi. Though here is something of a mystery, because we have a whole lot of information about what sort of goods were imported into Cahokia, but we don't really have any idea what sort of goods were produced in Cahokia by Cahokians for trade elsewhere. And that's why it's presumed that Cahokia was a gateway for trade. Um, there's little evidence of craft specialists at Cahokia. So, was Cahokia an empire of middlemen traders? Maybe, but if so, it seems odd that not a lot of craft specialization was taking place to increase the benefits of trade, if nothing else than done so, uh, than conducted by Cahokians without the political or religious power uh, and uh, who, who, who would have you know, profited just by being the middlemen, and who therefore might be more inclined to pursue some sort of craft or trade in order to better their station within society. So I think it's worth considering, though, um, that the reason that craft specialization then seems non-existent is that perhaps it occurred as agricultural surplus. Might Cahokians have made their fortune trading corn and other foods north? We don't know. Far more clear, though, is the fact that Cahokia had grown from village to chiefdom by about a thousand years ago, and that 100 years later it had continued developed and transformed itself into a significant regional center that exerted some form of control over other Mississippian groups to the south. During this time, surrounding towns actually began to disappear, and people started to relocate themselves, or were relocated, to Cahokia, and that these places were replaced by Cahokian farmlands. And over the next 100 years, that brings us to about 800 years ago, Cahokia gained influence over large areas to the east and west in addition to the south. But shortly after this, Cahokia began to collapse. The region experienced a severe drought about 750 years ago, and as opposed to the previous few hundred years, which had been a time of great agricultural surpluses for the people of the Mississippian bottom, um, drought and over-exploitation of resources, uh, though might not alone excuse me, explain the collapse of Cahokia altogether. Some archaeologists instead argue that other Mississippian cultures farther south were able to obtain political control over Cahokia, and this led to decline. Now, but up until this, Cahokia was the most powerful political entity in North America, and many researchers believe that Cahokia had gone beyond the level of chiefdom and to the level of statehood. So I'm not alone. I definitely agree that Cahokia was a state, as I said. And like I said, I also agree that a lot of other states uh, existed in North America. Now, with that said, though, the developments of Cahokia might very well have acted as a type of trigger. A trigger that sparked change in other societies to the south and east of Cahokia. Now, one of these societies, which was influenced by Cahokians, were the Caddo. The Caddo lived on the western side of the Mississippi Valley in what is now Arkansas and East Texas. Technically, the Caddo were not a single group. Caddo was a language. And Caddo society actually refers to a number of different independent groups who spoke the Caddoan language rather than a single political entity. 
Kadun peoples began developing chiefdoms around 1200 years ago, and that makes them some of the earliest adopters of the Mississippian culture. The Caddo organized themselves in complex chiefdoms, which, as I said earlier, basically consist of a number of tiered settlements. At the bottom were small villages without mounds. Uh, these Caddoans, on the bottom rungs of society, at least as far as political power went anyway, lived in large communal houses. These villages were ruled by larger towns with ceremonial and temple mounds, and these in turn were associated with still larger political centers. Now, the largest of Cadoan cities were independent of one another, and while generally allied with each other, power in the, of the, in the various Cadoan chiefdoms waxed and waned through time. No single Caddo political center ever seems to have uh, existed that controlled the whole thing. The individual Cadoan chieftains were ruled by a ruling class of elite nobility, whose members claimed relation to the sun, which basically means that the means of political power in Cadoan chiefdom was that of a theocracy. The people who lived in such a system likely saw their rulers having divine right, perhaps even been seen as something like a type of god-king. This individual would have been given great power. The archaeological evidence of complex mortuary customs for elites and occasional human sacrifice is probably the best evidence for a powerful theocratic political organization ruling Cadoan and other Mississippian chiefdoms that we have. Um, now, the Cadoan economy functioned similarly to that of Cahokia. It was based on extensive long-distance trade networks from which they obtained copper from the Great Lakes, marine shells from the Gulf Coast in Florida, and turquoise from the American Southwest. The primary crops of the region were corn, beans, and squash, of course. Melons were also grown in substantial numbers, though. Hunting and gathering remained important, though secondary, and both men and women shared in agricultural labor. Now, one major Cadoan site, which was worked on by archaeologists, is the Spiro site, which is in eastern Oklahoma and was occupied from about 1,200 years ago to about 650 years ago and seems to have been largely abandoned after the same drought which seems to have affected Cahokia. Spiro consisted of six large mounds situated around a central plaza. We know a little more about what Spiro traded exactly than what we know of from Cahokia. It appears that the main export from Spiro itself might have been dressed buffalo hides. These, as I mentioned earlier, were used to trade with peoples both east and west of Spiro uh, uh, for other prestige items. Now, Moving on from Spiro, I think we should also mention Moundville, which is a site in west-central Alabama. Now, Moundville is the largest known mound complex in the southeast that is not on the Mississippi River Valley. The site contained at least 29 pyramidal mounds. There might have actually been more that were plowed away over time, uh, but at any rate, these were oriented around a central plaza. Now, the site itself dates to about 1,100 years ago and it appears to have been very heavily populated. Warfare was common enough in the region that by 800 years ago at least, that uh, Moundville constructed a palisade and uh, built around the site, and a number of houses were built inside the walls, perhaps indicating a movement of people 
into the protected space of the town. Now, excuse me, in addition, a number of secondary sites were constructed at this time, possibly administrative centers. And by 700 years ago, Moundville was the largest Mississippian polity in West Central Alabama. Moundville continued changing. Sometimes shortly after 700 years ago, it seems the commoners got kicked out. Or they moved back into the countryside. At any rate, the Palisade was no longer maintained, and Moundville itself was occupied only by a relatively small number of elites. Now, we don't know why exactly this occurred. It is easy to imagine that a lessened need for defense simply meant that people no longer needed the safety of the city and just moved back into the countryside where they wanted to go. But you can't discount the idea that it was possible either that four poor farming techniques might have exhausted the soil, and so people were kind of just forced to move out for that reason, or that they were forced to move out because the elites simply kicked them out in order to make their home, Moundville, a more sacred place. Now, th this general trend anyway, that is to say, people leaving the center of Moundville for outlawing sites, continued. And by 600 years ago, some of the mounds at Moundville were abandoned. Uh, new mounds instead were built in the surrounding vicinity. Now, most of the site appears to have fallen in disuse by about 550 years ago and was eventually abandoned completely around 350 years ago, basically a casualty of disease. Now, as in other Mississippian societies, it is believed that a small class of elites dominated Moundville and ruled the population, which would make sense considering the archaeological record shows that the class of commoners weren't allowed to occupy the main site, um, but were very much present at the margins. Elites lived on some of the mounds. Others were craft centers or burial mounds. Southern burials uh, there contained copper axes, all of which were found with adult males interned at mounds in the center of the site. And so these seven individuals are assumed to have been the chiefs of the site or at least the primary chiefs of the site. One, uh, anyway, one last Mississippian site I want to talk about is Etowah, which lays in northwest Georgia. It's a site with six major mounds and a central plaza all within a palisade. Now, Etowah is distinctive because the main mound at the site is larger than any other Mississippian mound except for Monk's Mound in Cahokia. And Etowah was actually the capital for several different chiefdoms, it appears, at different times in history. At first, the site appears to have been occupied around a thousand years ago as a relatively small chiefdom. But from these beginnings, it developed um, into becoming a dominant regional capital, uh, probably as the result of accommodation and cooperation by smaller centers. And, and by the way, this sort of voluntary cooperative formation of more powerful chiefdoms um, forming from, from several smaller chief, chiefdoms coming together is basically one of two ways that chiefdoms are thought to have been formed. The other being some uh, elite or group of elites uh, with military force. But in Edo's case, it seems more likely that the so-called corporate model which is multiple groups or perhaps multiple clans, uh, worked together to build a larger polity. Um, and it appears that's how that happened. Anyway, either way, the first complex chiefdom at Etowah lasted from that point for about 200 years, but was then abandoned. But yet then about 100 years later, the site was reoccupied, 
and it developed into an even larger chiefdom. These people built additional mounds, they expanded the pre-existing mounds, and they built the palisade. But evidence indicates that invaders from a rival chiefdom attacked and destroyed this site around 625 years ago, despite these new fortifications. Now, despite this setback, Edwin's apparently claimed that what had occurred was merely a flesh wound. Edwin was reestablished again about 75 years later, and 550 years ago is when this was, a new chiefdom was reestablished. This chiefdom was a minor settlement within the much larger chiefdom of Kusa at the time of contact. Now, with all of the connections between the northeast and the southeastern woodlands, as far as the development of Mississippian culture goes, you would probably think you think that there's really no point in separating these two places as separate cultural regions. Um, because while the northeast and southeast developed together, um, you know, what's the point? But there were definitely some very different developments that went on in the northeast and the southeast. Now, vast chiefdoms arose in the northeast all along and, and into the southeast all along the Atlantic coast, but culturally these places were not Mississippian um, at any rate. The Haudenosaunee say the world is a great island floating in space, and people were created by the great creative being who ordered the Sky Woman down onto this great island, which was the earth and which also is on the back of a great turtle. Sky Woman was pregnant, and she gave birth to a daughter. Her daughter then gave birth as well to the twin brothers, who are the embodiment of good and evil. All else in creation comes from this event. The Micmac an Algonquian group in Nova Scotia say that the earth was divided into several areas and the sun, also known as the grandfather, created a man and woman in each area. Other Algonquian people say that, the human, say that humans crawled up from the ground after it was first struck from an arrow. The non-Mississippian world of the eastern woodlands was very diverse. A wide variety of groups lived in the Northeast, on the Middle Atlantic, and in down into the Middle Atlantic. Most of them spoke either Iroquoian or Algonquian languages, and they lived in a variety of different social organizations, from powerful chieftains like the Powhatan Confederacy in Virginia, to the variety of bands, tribes, and chiefdoms uh, in between. People lived here in everything from small hamlets to large, fortified towns and villages, and many of the Algonquian-speaking pe people, though, practiced less agriculture than the Iroquoians, and instead focused more on hunting and fishing. The Micmac, too far north to practice agriculture, survived almost entirely on hunting and gathering. Yet even they practiced some horticulture. Tobacco was cultivated by the Micmac, and was important, as was the collection of maple syrup, which occurred from cultivated forests. One of the most recognizable aspects of Native American culture in this place, in general in the Northeast, is from something called wampum. Wampum is basically small cylindrical shell beads made from purple quahog clamshells and white univalve whelk shells. They were produced by both Algonquian and Iroquoian speakers in the Northeast, and these beads, wampum, could be used as a form of money. 
In fact, later, in historical times, wampum was currency in the Northeast. But to simply say wampum is money wouldn't really tell the whole story. Wampum has special value to the people of the Northeast. These beads were valuable for their decorative use, sure. They could be used for adornment as belts or necklaces or used for trade. But the largest wampum belts were made for very different reasons. The beautiful patterns on these large belts were made to be documents, just as much as they were pieces of art. Peace treaties were made between tribes and signified by the, and were signified by the creation of a wampum belt. The Haudenosaunee created a wampum belt which showed five people with joined hands. This represented the coming together of the five tribes and the creation of the Haudenosaunee. These people, the Haudenosaunee, are the final group we'll be talking about in detail today, and there is a reason for this. I mean, a reason other than the fact that I've been rambling on for going on three hours now, and I should really wrap this episode up sometime pretty soon. Uh, anyway, Iroquoian groups in the northeast fissured around 4,000 years ago. Some moved south and become the historic Cherokee. And on a side note... Some of you, I'm sure, are going to be going positively bonkers. Then I'm going to go through the entirety of the southeast, and now we're back into the northeast, and I'm apparently finishing up, and I haven't mentioned the five civilized tribes. Well, the truth of the matter, the five civilized tribes didn't exist in their current incarnation until after contact with Europeans, and the resulting destruction of Mississippian societies. People actually reform themselves into what becomes the five civilized tribes in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, at any rate, Haudenosaunee culture became distinctly visible in New York and Ontario around 2,000 years ago. These were people who practiced a mixed economy of horticulture and hunting, hunting deer in particular. They re emphasized respect for these animals, in fact, by not feeding bones to dogs and by placing carcasses in trees away from predators. In fact, each year, the first deer killed by, in the hunt by the Haudenosaunee was not eaten at all, but sacrificed to eagles. By about a thousand years ago, they farmed with the entire kit of the three sisters and worked fields with shifting agricultural techniques, switching from one field to another every 20 years or so. Men cleared these fields, but women planted, tended, and harvested crops. The Haudenosaunee, or Iroquois, which is not the preferred name and is actually an Algonquian term for the Haudenosaunee, they lived in large permanent villages usually paired into moieties. These paired villages were separated by a few kilometers from each other, and these pair of villages would be separated by the next pair of villages by about another 20 or 30 kilometers. At any rate, each village itself contained four or five longhouses, each of which was divided into components for families. Each longhouse contained something like three to six families, and each had their own hearth in the longhouse. So that could be a pretty smoky place. Each village was about 100 or 200 people. Now, the longhouse dates to about 1,100 years ago, and at first they were small, but they grew larger over time until about 500 years ago, and were probably first constructed to support matrilineal extended families, or clans, depending on uh, your vernacular, and their populations grew uh, well until about 700 years ago. Um, Haudenosaunee, in fact, is a word that means people of the longhouse. 
Now, in the not-too-distant past, though it is unclear when exactly this happened, the Haudenosaunee found themselves in a time of war, as has happened to all peoples countless times in the history of Earth. But the Haudenosaunee found a way to make peace, lasting peace, peace between different peoples. And in doing so, they created the first confederated representative democracy in the world. Now, many people will tell you that this had nothing to do with the creation of the system of government, later instituted by the founding fathers of the United States, on account of there aren't a whole lot of documents written by the founding fathers specifically stating this as such. But this is really only true if you flat out ignore the fact that in 1744, envoys from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia met with the sachems, or delegates, from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and listened to a speech by one of the sachems, or chiefs, or delegates. His name was Castanat, Canast, excuse me, Canastego, and he explained exactly how Haudenosaunee democracy worked. Quote, our wise forefathers established a union and amity between the original five nations. This has made us formidable. This has given us great weight and authority with our neighboring nations. We are a powerful confederacy, and by your observing the same methods our wise forefathers have taken, you will acquire much strength and power. Therefore, whatever befalls you, do not fall out with one another. Unquote. Now, I know that that quote comes from a bit beyond from where I told you that this episode and, in fact, this entire series would end. But I think it's also simply too important to just not point out. Now, some of you are undoubtedly thinking, as many U.S. historians have thought, that one speech aside, how could that have possibly affected these revolutionary-minded colonists? Well, a, 1744, they weren't quite revolutionary-minded yet. But anyway, because one of the interpreters of the event was a good friend of Benjamin Franklin's. And Benjamin Franklin immediately asked for a transcript of what happened. And then he published that speech. And in, in case you're thinking that something that Ben Franklin uh, might have published, uh, you know, just so what? It was published by one guy, and it might have been quickly forgotten. A, Ben Franklin was the most popular writer in the colonies by a long shot. And B, seven years later, Franklin wrote to a friend in New York named James Parkner, quote, it would be a very strange thing if six nations of ignorant savages should be capable of forming a scheme for such a union and be able to execute it in such a manner that it has subsisted ages and appears indissoluble. And yet, that a like union should be impractical for ten or a dozen English colonies, to whom it is more necessary and must be more advantageous, and who cannot be supposed to want an equal understanding of their interests, unquote. I think I've made my case that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy was important for the development of Western democracy. And with that done, I guess I should tell you how it formed. Nobody knows exactly when the peacemaker was born, but during his life there was an eclipse. And for this reason, perhaps he was born and lived around a thousand years ago. He was born in the Northeast Woodlands, in a time when a man or woman might be killed or injured by his enemies for any slight offense. Blood feuds between clans and villages ravaged the people, 
No one was safe. In this time, a child was born on the north side of Lake Ontario to the Wyandotte people. I will not say his name. It is custom for the Haudenosaunee to never speak it. If you wish to learn it, you are welcome to do so. You go to Wikipedia or whatever and learn his name. But I need you to know, it is disrespectful to Haudenosaunee people for you to say his name out loud. Therefore, he is addressed here only as the peacemaker. Early in his life, he concluded that the blood feuds and revenge killings needed to be abolished. His ideas, though, were rejected by the Wyandotte and other Huron peoples. And as a young man, he journeyed to the southeast shore of Lake Ontario, to the areas today called the Mohawk Valley. The peacemaker did something extraordinary when he went to the Mohawk. He sought out the most fearsome destroyers of human beings. One at a time he sought them out. Murderers, hunters of humans. Men who wore many scalps on their belts, some even, some men, who even were cannibals. To each of these vile, disgusting men, the peacemaker brought the same message. And in doing so, he straightened out their minds. The peacemaker turned nine of the most wicked and feared men in all of Mohawk country and transformed them into his disciples. He taught them the following principles. The first of which was that human beings were abusing each other, killing and destroying. But since this world, and everything in this world, was part of the same creation, it could not be possible that human beings were intended to abuse one another. Healthy human minds always desire peaceful resolutions to their conflicts. The peacemaker proposed that since the great creator did not intend human beings to abuse one another, that human beings must form governments to prevent this abuse. Governments should be established for the purpose of abolishing war and abolishing robbery and to establishing peace and quietness. The peacemaker stated his desire for a representative government that was righteous, which to him meant a government of the people by the people, and for the people. His plan for a government was designed to ensure the right of survival for all people, because in everyone in creation was a creation of the universe. So even those who could not work for were provided for. No person or people had a right to deprive others of the fruits of those gifts. The peacemaker envisioned a government based upon counsel, where arbitration and negotiation were used to settle differences, and where force was used only in defense. Power of persuasion and reason were to be used first, not the power of force. These principles were to be set forth and established by, by governments that served under what the peacemaker called the Great Law, an argument for what later Europeans would call natural law. The peacemaker stated that all leaders or chiefs were to be servants of the people, who would have direct participation in the workings of their government. The peacemaker argued for direct democracy. His path was not an easy one, but one by one, he drew in the disparate tribes. The Mohawks came together under this law. 
Then he went to the Oneidas. Then to the Onondagas. Then to the Cayugas. And finally the Seneca. The peacemaker transformed these peoples, these separate peoples, into a unified group, the people of the Longhouse, the Haudenosaunee. The first and most important principle of this new confederation was that all people of the nations were one people. The country of the Haudenosaunee itself was a great longhouse. The sky was the roof and the earth was the floor. The peacemaker abolished the exclusive national territories and the concept of national minorities within the five nations. Each member had the full rights of any other. As such, the peacemaker argued that any attack on one member was an attack on all. In return to such an attack, the Haudenosaunee were to carry out a war into the invaders' country until the war was concluded, and this was the only reason to organize military force. We began this episode talking about some common themes in Native American societies. Matrilineages, clans, and moieties. These institutions existed in American societies across geographical, linguistic, and cultural barriers. I want to end this episode on a similar note, talking about another common theme of Native American societies, and that is Native American religion. Which is why I peppered this episode with a number of creation myths, and I know what you're thinking. Whoa, Jesse, you literally just showed us how radically different the religions of Native American societies were. And to that I say that is certainly one way of looking at it. One side of the coin as it were. But in American creation myths, in their absurdity, in their obvious and sometimes almost tongue-in-cheek references to previous creations, we see that despite vast differences in the specific details, one constant theme, and that is Native American religion celebrates and makes sacred the here and now. In Western religions, the universe is basically comprised of three parts. Heaven on top, earth in the middle, hell on the bottom. The sacred, the mundane, and the profane. According to this philosophy, we live on earth in a mundane world, and the magic stuff is mostly elsewhere. It definitely comes from somewhere else. Which sort of explains, to be honest, why Europeans are going out conquering other places back in the day. They didn't see their home as a sacred place. Not in the same way as Native Americans did. Instead, they're always seeking utopia somewhere else. Native Americans didn't view the world like that. Or, I should say, the universe that, like that. And, and in fact, to them, in some ways there was no heaven earth and hell, but rather just one thing. And you might think that this one thing is the earth. But I don't really think that's quite accurate. Native American religion, traditional Native American religion, essentially views the entire physical universe as a mixture of heaven and hell. And that is where we live. That is creation. That is the universe. And there's nothing mundane about it. Therefore, 
In such a philosophy, the goal of being a human being, the secret to life, the universe, and everything, is to make the earth just like heaven, if I may quote the cure. Part of why the peacemaker's message resonated so well amongst different peoples of the Northeast was this basic shared belief structure. His instructions on governance included an admonition to rulers that they should make all decisions based not upon, obviously not themselves, not even just their people, but on behalf of the seventh generation coming, and that this was how to achieve true peace. In sum, the peacemaker's message was nothing less than a call to consciousness, a message that I hope still resonates today. Now, I know the cynics out there amongst you I mean, I, I am a cynic myself. I, I know what you're thinking. But Jesse, the peacemaker, might have united the Iroquois, but they sure didn't end all these wars. Well, of course not. That would be ridiculous. And to that I say, you are correct. Perhaps democracy really is the worst of all governments. Except, as Winston Churchill reminds us, all the others which have been tried. And that leads me into the other reason why the peacemaker's message resonated so well. And that is that life for pre-Columbian Native Americans was no idyllic paradise that many people imagine it to be. The clan system served to bind people together. They increased trade and performed a variety of roles in American life. But competition amongst clans could be fierce. Rivalries could lead to revenge killings and that could easily descend into cyclical violence. In the pre-Columbian Americas, these issues led to human tragedies, like the Crow Creek Massacre in North Dakota, endemic slavery in places like the Pacific Northwest, and in the Mississippian chiefdoms, it created endemic warfare and a, and a tiered class system where some people lived like kings and others risked starvation. Now, of course, these issues are the same that occurred elsewhere in the world. And they very well may be endemic to human populations once they become agriculturalists and more sedentary. What makes the peacemaker special is that his solution to these problems wasn't to make himself king or a despot. It wasn't to install a theocracy. It was to create a representative democracy what later Europeans might call a nation of laws. Homo sapiens are apes. We are animals, beasts, descendants of fucking fish, and we have lizard brains. Being a human being doesn't just happen to us naturally. It's a choice we make. We have to work at being human. Excellent show, by the way. The peacemaker got people to work at being human. Therefore, the peacemaker is without a doubt a great dude of history, perhaps the greatest that this show will ever discuss. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme, and that's why this episode, and not to mention this whole series, is so important. The peacemaker's message is as important today as it was a thousand years ago. 
It doesn't mean we're facing the exact same problems, those of us living in a representative democracy anyway. And I'm not saying that the one I live in, mine, is perfect, the United States. It's far from it. But for now, at least, I'm, I definitely live in the nation of laws. I think. I also definitely live in an American society that is in many ways falling apart. In the peacemaker's time, the problem was that there was no law and order. He came up with a solution, a representative democracy. Today, that isn't our problem. There is law and order. The problem is that there's almost no clan structure left. People need meaning. Connections with other people, communities. Native Americans weren't perfect people, but they were people. A lot of them tried really hard at it. They built communities that celebrated the here and now. They had rules and regulations, parties, celebrations. They had solemn occasions, rituals, the whole shebang. Life was important to them. They gathered together and just were human. This was manifested in Mississippian societies, especially, you could say, in the autumn, each year on the most important holiday of the year, what Muscogean speakers called the Pusteca, the Green Corn Festival. Now, to make things simple for Americans today, essentially, it is the Mississippian version of Thanksgiving. It occurred when the harvest occur occurred and the corn was fresh. This was a joyous occasion. I don't want to get into everything involved right now, but one part of the yearly tradition was that everything was cleaned in the village. Everything. Every fire pit. Every single inch of this town will be clean. In fact, go to your room right now, young man. But not every fire would be put out. Because at the center of Mississippian life is a concept called, known as the sacred fire. Sacred fire was not created by human beings. It came from nature, a lightning strike or something. But it was tended by human beings as a ritual, a way to remind Mississippian peoples that some things were really important. The sacred fire represented these important things which people must do, which make people who they are. And no matter what else happens, though everything else may change as years go by, some things are important and should be kept so. Today, we have new tools, the internet, smartphones, technologies that have transformed life as surely as corn and the bow and arrow did for anybody else who lived in the past, and not always for the best. Tools can be like that. They can be used for good or for ill. Now I'm not about to tell you that the internet or your iPhone are the root of all your problems. Far from it. But I am telling you that these new tools make it a lot easier to sometimes substitute a real human experience with something similar to a real human experience. And I, for one, know from personal experience, and I'm sure many of you do too, it's actually kind of easy to be a little withdrawn from the world while simultaneously almost talking to people in the form of texting. There's something about actually physically meeting with friends. 
making eye contact and looking people in the eye that is important about being a human being. Now, many old institutions have failed. So, failed so many times, in fact, it's easy to see that there are far greater reasons involved beyond our smartphones as to why we don't have something equivalent to a strong modern clan system. I mean, modern churches, a lot of them seem actually pretty hateful. And not to mention possibly filled with pedophiles. It's, I mean, it's easy to see why people don't congregate there like they used to. Not to mention, those stories, they aren't about the here and now. They're about desert people who lived thousands of years ago without the internet. In a totally different vein, there's athletic organizations. But simultaneously to me, in the United States, sports seem mostly pursued as, as something for children. And... And while for adults, you know, sports clearly do build communities together, um, that seems quite secondary in the purpose of drawing profit from owning the rights to the performances of elite athletes. And I, I could go on. But if you're looking for a root cause of many of today's social ills, well, it's right there. On the other hand, we have fancy tools internet, smartphones, and, and when used, they could, we often use them to create, like I said, a, a fake, almost human experience, but they can also, just as easily, or, well, almost as easily, be used in a different way to connect more people than could ever be possible in the past. So there's a solution to the problems of the present. Join a club. Start a club. Start a group. Make a connection with strangers. Form your clan. Don't wait. Do it now. Society is literally crumbling around you. You must light the sacred fire. There is a truth about stories, my friends. That it doesn't really matter what I want you to do once I've told a story. I can tell you to start a clan till I'm blue in the face. I can plead with you to get your friends together and form some sort of athletic league. You could volunteer just a couple hours a week as a referee in presto. You could have tournaments and championships. And before you know it, future generations of legends could be born. All on account of you and that smartphone of yours. I could beg you to start a gaming group. You could play Dungeons and Dragons once a week for years, for so long that one day your motherfucking great goddamn grandkids might be sitting around playing Dungeons and Dragons a hundred years from now, and they will quest with the goal of putting to rest the soul of the lich who was once one of your effing PCs. You could literally build your own mythologies. I could implore you to form a local chess team so you could get together with good folks, play chess, and hell, maybe once in a while your chess club might go down to a local school and you could tutor kids in how to play. You could form a reading club, a kayaking club. You could do anything you want. 
You might turn your clan into a literal community. You and your friends could get some land, make, make a self-sufficient community. Or your clan might be as simple as meeting up every year for Thanksgiving with friends and family, renting a beach house to fish, feast, and see each other and make drunken memories. There is, in fact, no right answer as to the question of how to be a human being. But whatever answer you think might be right, I would beg you to do it with gusto. To build your clan, to make it special to you, to make it special to others. To have tournaments, to have potlatches, to have ceremonies and dances. To do all of the things that people can do when they get together. To light your sacred fire. Or at least I would beg you to do this. But there is a truth about stories, my friends. The truth about stories is it's not up to me. The truth about stories is up to you. You might take my advice. And in a thousand years from now, people might even tell stories about you and how life began the day you turned on your smartphone. But you might not do that. So like I said, it's not up to me at all. A story might make you happy. might make you sad. You might laugh or cry. It could rile you up with determination so fierce that you could change your life and the lives of people around you. You might even transform the homo sapiens around you into human beings. You might, in fact, save someone's life. Or a story might make you angry. You might not like a story so much. You might hate a story so much you do something crazy. <laughs> might become an, an incel or... You might join the KKK. Truth about stories is once you've heard a story, you can do whatever the hell you want. The truth about stories is there's only one thing you can't do after you've heard a story. In years to come, as hatred continues to grow in some neighbors' hearts, in part because old institutions are failing, in part because people fall for the words of charlatans or worse, the those spread who spread hateful rhetoric, and in part because a life without strong human connections is less meaningful and causes many to give up and become drug addicts or worse, to do hateful and violent things. In such a time when elections become increasingly dangerous and there are riots and assassinations and bombings and brother kills brother and a civil war starts and more and more people become heroin addicts and simply check out from reality, then, my friends, there is simply one thing you cannot do. You may never say, if only, if only I had known, if only I had known, I could have changed the world by starting a fucking gardening club. I could have saved people's lives.
I gotta help do something important, something sacred. I could have created a community of human beings. You may never say I would not have let the sacred fire be extinguished. And this is something you may never say, because you have heard this story now. Next episode, we pick back up in Mesoamerica, my friends. Until then, don't forget to say hello to Raven if you see him. Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand, cause it's a mutiny. Ship. It's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, it's a mutiny, and I'm taking over the ship. Hey, mighty captain, haven't you heard what's happening here? It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny.